Sandra all the time is here with a cold heart true. She's the ears and the eyes for me and you. Every day, everyone want to hear from Sandra. And every time on the air, she's getting better. Tell your sister, tell your brother, tell your mama, call Sandra in the morning and in the Always calling, calling Sandra, and when they start fighting, they calling Sandra, and it's That's right, folks. Everyone is telling their mama about the cold hard truth. Welcome to another episode with more truth telling, more problem solving, and of course, more tea spilling than ever before. Sit back, students, grab your tea and turn up the volume because class is now in session. Call in at 936-2626 because your voice matters. Share your opinion on issues that matter the most to you. Good morning, good morning, K-Man. Happy, happy Friday. How is everybody doing? All right, we're going to get this show on the road here shortly. Good morning. We're going to do roll call. I see a few people running late, including myself, to be honest. Oh, my goodness. Some mornings, it's hard to to get moving. We got some breaking news we're going to be sharing with you guys here in just a second. 9362626. Of course, the phone lines are open. You can call in anytime your little heart desires. Let me connect it first of all. I had to charge the phone up last night. <clears throat> My apologies. So let me just make sure we are good to go. Hello. Hello, weekend. I see you looking at me. All right. First order of business, let's get the Instagram folks live and direct. We like to include them. Um, they've been pretty good. They've been behaving. So... We'll continue to be inclusive of them. So let me just uh, get this going here now. Today is Friday the 23rd already. Oh my gosh, where does the time go? Hmm. So um, we're also going to grab our links. It's a fab Friday. I'm so excited about what we've got coming up for you guys here shortly this morning. And I think you're going to be excited to see it as well. Oh my gosh, I got the wrong Facebook group. Hold on. How on earth did I do that? Okay, hold on, hold on. I just realized something. Un momento, por favor. Um, I was wondering what was going on. Okay. Okay, all right. So, yes, save changes. Looks like I was streaming to the wrong Facebook group. Oh my gosh. I was like, where's all my Facebook people? Now I know where they are. They're there waiting going, hey, where are you, Auntie? Huh. All right. 
just saw what's going on there in the settings. Good morning. They'll soon be logging on. And then I'll grab the links for everybody as well. So just one moment, one moment. We're going to get it. We're going to get it. We're going to sort it right out. And then we're waiting on Blake and Aaron to jump on any second now. And um, yes, honey, chill. We'll be getting all the morning headlines and news. I was up kind of late last night. I'm going to tell you guys why here in a second. Um, actually, maybe I should make you guess what I was up doing. Mm, that might be a loaded question. <laughs> Proceed with caution in that one, my love. All right. Some of y'all might have to be put in the naughty corner. Yes, good morning. There's my usual suspects. Okay, so let me just grab the links. Let's play a little Beloved Isle Cayman while I do that. We got the links now. I can send those out to everyone. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sirs. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. Let me see here just a second. Um, Fab Friday. Uh-huh. Okay. There we go. Good stuff. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Ready to rock and roll now. Where's Blake and Aaron this morning? Huh. Oh, there they are. I was going to say they're MIA. Hello. Hmm. So strange. Huh. I was like, where are they? Good morning. Happy Friday. I don't know where you were. Yeah, we're right here. We're here. We're there. We're everywhere. We're right here. And we're nowhere. Ah, here, there, and everywhere. All righty. You know what my grand, uh, grandfather always used to tell me? Mm-hmm. What did no he tell you? No matter where you go. Uh-huh. There you are. There you are. That's what my dad says all the time. <laughs> oh, really? My dad's thing. No matter where you go, there think, you are. I had to think what about it? that for it a long there, time. It's from like Buckaroo Banzai or something. That quote. How old is that? Because that was, I was a youngster when that got said to me. No matter where you go, son, there no you are. No matter where, where you there are. There you'll be. Okay, yeah. No matter where you go, there mm-hmm. you are. You don't know, you don't know S from Shinola. Do you know that saying? <laughs> no. Hey, we're not live on Kiss. You don't know shit from Shinola. <laughs> but we're live on Bobo. Oh, are we? <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, I'm going to report you to the general manager over there at DMF. Oh, wait a minute. That's you. <laughs> Actually, I think you can say that word. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think you can say that word. Yeah, but I, I, I we're always, we're always not, we're always live. I immediately apologize. Uh, stand by for news. <laughs> oh, my God. 
Big news. I have some important news for you. Interesting news. It's Blake and Darren's Spilling the Tea with Sandy. K-Man's top news headlines of the day from CMR. All right. All right, let's head to Sandy Land and get some headlines on this Friday. Good morning. Okay, good morning, good morning, good morning. How are you guys doing today? We are good. Good, how are you? So, a bit of breaking news. We've got an accident, a very serious accident, it appears, um, happening Frank Sound, East End area this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have any confirmations except that Seaview Road um, is closed and that traffic is therefore being um, diverted. So we would ask for everyone to obviously, you know, follow police instructions and, um, you know, drive, drive cautiously as we maneuver the roads this morning. So we know that um, CMR sources have revealed it's two Jamaican gentlemen and one Nicaraguan uh, lady were driving in this vehicle when somehow it crashed. And um, yeah, you know, the one vehicle. Have- accident Hmm. yeah we'll have further um updates in terms of of their condition a little bit later on but mm, bad accidents yesterday too good no oh yeah in the vicinity east of health city um cayman island so okay that road is going to be closed probably for a bit this morning they're asking everyone to avoid the area Uh oh yikes Mm yeah um so in other news, the um, trial continues um, in Mr. McKeever Bush. Um, the two um, complainants uh, video interviews were played yesterday. They're called ABA. I forget what that stands for, but it's like an interview that they do shortly after the incident. And uh, it was interest. It was very, very interesting. I must tell you, uh, my mouth is kind of opened. Um, I'm just going to give you a quote from it and then we're going to move on. So, uh, one in one interview, the second complainant said, the thing about drunk people is you don't want to get them angry. You just try to extricate as, as early as possible. Mm. Yes. All right. So, uh, once the trial is over, we'll be able to obviously delve in deeper and we're going to have a whole special segment on this. Um, a section of the Linford Pearson Highway is set to be closed on Sunday as road works continue. Um, so the National Roads Authority has advised that the northbound lanes on the Linford Pearson Highway from Agnes Way uh, to Smith Road slash Bobby Thompson intersection mm-hmm. is going to be closed from approximately 5 a.m. until 6 p.m. on Sunday. That's a good day to do it. But I mean, yes. they got to get that. They got to get that finished at some point. <laughs> Absolutely, right. <laughs> it's been so long now. It's it pending, pending weather. Um, and you know, you know what? It's gonna I'm be just fine the- out there and cooler. So yeah, let's go. I don't, I don't know who else is bothered by this, but I hate when they finish a road like they've just paved it, and all, all these massive construction um, trucks come and mess up the nicely paved road. Am I the only yeah. one who gets bothered by that? Is that that, like or, yeah, or when they do finish a road and then no. it's like, oh, no, we need to uh, dig it up again to put a pipe down. Yes, and then they don't fix it back properly. No. <laughs> no I, I, I want the, the nicely paved road to look nice for like six months. Is that too much to ask? Aesthetically, yeah. me too. <laughs> so anyway, uh, they'll be doing some road works on Sunday. So, you know, use, use crew road or um, something else. There are probably a lot of logistics we don't understand. I know, I know. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm still pretty impressed that they did all that overnight that one night. You know, and no, they, I mean, I, I, when they opened it up, yeah, I couldn't visualize it until it was yeah. done. 
Right. You know, I was like, whoa, this is what they've been working on. It looks fantastic. Shout out mm. to all the hardworking folks yep. over at the NRA. Yep. All right. The Heart Foundation uh, invites the public to a free health fair. So check this out. And in honor, sorry, of Heart Month, the Cayman Heart Foundation, CHF, is inviting the public <clears throat> to a free health and health fair and heart screening. Wait, health fair and heart health screening. Who wrote that? That's a tongue twister. Event at the Savannah Seven-Day Adventist Church on Sunday. That's this coming Sunday, February the 25th from 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. The event promotes or provides an excellent opportunity for people to take proactive steps towards uh, managing and understanding their heart health. So mm. come on out. There'll be a number of wellness booths and, you know, they're going to talk about or have booths there about plant therapy, healthy cooking demonstrations, massage therapy, and so on. And um, anyone over uh, 16 can actually have their assessment done for their weight, BMI, blood pressure, cholesterol, and glucose level, and a mm -hmm. consultation with a healthcare professional. So this is good. You got to keep on top of your numbers. Good. Mm -hmm. So go and uh, support that event if you can. So um, just a little bit of celebrity news. I'm sure you guys saw this about Wendy Williams. And yeah, we're going to talk about that next. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that. so sad. I'm going to talk a little bit about it this morning as well. Yeah, that's... Uh, like unbelievable. Hey, Sandy, it's the last Friday of the month. Oh, my gosh. Already? Yeah. You know, it's Boogie Nights tonight. Woo! <laughs> Shake your booty. Why can't uh, we not see you, by the way? I want to see you dance right now. Oh, my Come gosh. On. Come on. <laughs> Let's turn that camera on. There you are. Yeah. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Boogie Nights tonight at Sandbar. Right. We're going to be there tonight, actually. Okay. Don't play too yeah. much of that because you'll get me blocked on Facebook or something. All right. All, All right. these copywriting. Sony will jump in. We own that music. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Give me a break. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. Have a good one. See you later. All right. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Wagwan. Wagwan. Roll call time. Um, by the way, if you missed story time yesterday, go back and watch the show. A lot of people were like, oh, my God, Sandy. Story time was riveting. I love it. Apparently, uh, where's Johan? Is Johan here this morning? We're we're too boring for Johan in 2024. He says he wants more action on Friday. He wants to have the after show, and he wants to have bun Fridays, and he wants to have all sorts of stuff. He was messaging me complaining yesterday. We need to turn it up. I said, Johan, you can't turn it up all the time, honey child. That's how you that's how you burn down the house when you turn it up. But he seems like he just wants it hot, hot, hot all the time. Maybe I should just give him some hot brownies and then he can put that with his cool ice cream and just simmer down. Simmer down, Johan. Simmer down. Um, anywho, <laughs> we got Mr. G in the house says, I'm going to agree with Johan. I want it hotter too. Ooh, honey, child, y'all so bad. Mm -mm -mm. I've been trying to behave. It's a new year. Gosh, can't we behave? Y'all like, nope, we're not here for you to behave, woman. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm, I'm like in my zen mode these days. Um, you know, super chill for 2024. But don't worry. So, somebody's bound to piss me off sooner rather than later. I'm sure of that. Um, and probably a politician. But I... <laughs> Come on now. I know it ain't that bad. Oh, my gosh. This other person says, yes, burn us up on Friday, Sandy. OMG. No, sir. Y'all are ridiculous. <laughs> oh, 
Ooh, honey child. Well, we made it through February, so let's see what happens next month. Um, Ms. Renita, good morning. <laughs> Caribbean Boy TV, good morning to you. Oh, Eddie Powell. Hey, Eddie. How you doing? <laughs> Mr. G says, burn the house down. That's what we want. Toot, toot. Um, oh. Oh. Oh, gosh. All right. Miss Sonia, good morning to you. Irvlin is here. Uh, Cece McLaughlin in the house. Olive, Aliana, Stephanie. I tell you what. Here, here's, here's the deal. All right. Y'all want a hot, hot Saturday, um, Friday? We might get it before then, but here's what I'm going to do. I know which one is going to be hot. After this trial is over, mm -hmm, after the jury is done, we can't, we can't do much beforehand. We will have, and I was actually saying this to someone yesterday. I'm like, I think I might need to charge money for this. For We'll, we'll, we'll do like a closed session, charge, charge all of $5.00. Support CMR's burn, burn days, right? The person said, no, Sandy, that's going to be worth at least $25 now. Come on, girl. Front row seats. Okay. We will have a special edition of my true feelings and analysis. No holes bar, which y'all know what that means. Auntie Sandy is going to come with a couple little words that might be offending your church sensibilities. So those of you who would be offended, you get warned in advance. It's obviously not going to be on radio. So you tune in for the after show. And um, we'll do that. Okay. That's, that's the one that I can promise you is definitely coming with a little extra dose of the cold hard truth. So that one we'll, we'll do shortly. Mm -hmm. Wink, wink. Honey, chill. Morning, Miss Debbie. Stephanie Brooks in the house. Good morning. Aliano, did I say morning to you and Miss Olive already? Debbie, yes, thank you. Unfortunately, an accident in East End. We're going to get some updates on that here shortly. Morning, Miss Lucille, Pat, Alejandro, Wee Wee, Damaris joining us from New York, Nueva York. Everton, First Lady. Ever wishing everybody a great weekend. Uh, Miss Yuline, morning to you. Um, Alejandro says development at its best. It's the fact that they got permission to build. That's the gateway drug for developers. What are we talking about so early this morning, Alejandro? Uh, okay. Hilda, good morning. Steven joining us in the UK. Miss Daisy, buenos dias. Liana, how you doing, honey chair? Mm -hmm. She says, good sus Friday. Oh, no, honey chair. Hey, Tracy. Yasmin is here. Diamond princess. Good morning. Good morning. All right, let's check my WhatsApp messages. Uh, yes, this one says, burn down the house. Speaking of burning down the house, um, this person said, good morning, TD. How are you? Please don't overdo yourself because we need you. Uh, you're our, you, we need you slash our CMR was the best thing that happened to this island and its people. In fact, the world. Oh my gosh, What? Uh, thank you, and God bless you and your family. Lively up yourself. So, um, mm -hmm. so guess what? Um, this person says, this was the kindest of shady replies I thought of, but like, for real, not even hiding the casual racism. Uh, okay, all right, well... <laughs> 
we'll get to that in just a second. Um, good morning, Sandy. I say that I say this every time I go out on the road about the cement and digging up of the new roads. These people knows about the paving prior to, and by the time the pavement get hard, they're digging it up and got cement all over the road and government should have them clean up that cement. Yes. Okay. So it's, it's a pet peeve of mine, actually. I hate to see. And sometimes I know it's, it's unavoidable. For example, um, the Gene Thompson, uh, Gene Thompson, the, um, well, the Gene Thompson radiation center is right there, but there is um, the new Jay Bodden road extension, the airport connector road. There's a lot of construction in that area. Of course, Health City Cayman Islands is doing their new construction. Oh man, I was driving by there yesterday, I think it was, or day before. And I'm like, whoa, this place looks like it's soon going to be done. Hmm. It's it's a good size. I'm wondering if it's actually bigger than the one in East End. We got Ashamari. Yeah, it looks pretty big because it's multi-level, you know? Um, and I'm going to give you all a little bit of exclusive sauce. Something I heard, you know, because we get a lot of shush around here. Uh, apparently, that um, property is owned because a lot of people are like, oh, that's Dart. Well, Dart did own it. As you guys know, for example, um, Dart owns um, the school, CIS, and then they rent the facility from him, basically, right? But apparently, Health City got some kind of sweet deal, and this is the only time that Dart has done this, um, sold the property to Health City. So they actually own their own property, their own building. And Dart never does that. For any of these things that you see happening around came out of base, so even like Foster's, that's like a lease situation. They don't own that. That's, you know, they have a multi, probably 100-year lease or whatever. Um, but yes, my understanding is um, obviously the Foster's purpose built that store, but they don't own the land, right? So my understanding is that um, Health City was able to broker this deal where they actually purchase and own the land. And part of it is that DART, the DART organization was like, you know what? They're really committed to um, bringing health care in a big way to the West. And so they were like, yeah, let's get it done. So that's that's a pretty, that's a pretty good situation there for Health City, I must say. Um, but the building looks good. And then it's going to connect to the, the radiation center. Like it's right next to it, literally. And it's going to have like a little connector and everything. So you'll have all of your um, tier one medical facilities right there. So I am looking forward to getting my little tour of that facility. So it's be getting close now to opening. Hmm. So it looks pretty interesting. All right. So I drove by there. But that road, you know, all the construction trucks coming in and out, the dump trucks coming in and out, man, they already got that nicely paved road all unpaved and dirty. I was like, oh, I like to just see, you know, when they pave it, it looks beautiful. So even the new Linford Pearson extension, you know, these trucks coming in and out still, horse manure, cow manure, everything they're putting on the new road. I was like, why can't we... And I, I want to ask NRA, I, I don't think they are going to do this, but I was going to beg them after the construction is done, can you just repave like the surface? So it still looks new. Am I the only one who likes things to look new for a hot minute? <laughs> eh, Lord. Mm -mm. Pretty. Let, let's make it look pretty. You know, women, eh, sometimes I got, I got to give you this joke. Um, so, so some things are so cliche 
about men and women, right? So I was speaking to, um, by the way, I think I told you guys this, but my, the birthday card finally came. Remember, my birthday was in August. There's a little, um, you know, mishap and we had to reorder and whatever. So it finally came a couple of weeks ago. And um, big shout out to Mercedes and Car City. They have got the best customer service. Trust me when I tell you. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So it came on uh, like a Friday. At, actually came in like a Thursday night. They had everything cleared Friday. And they're like, okay, you know, they have a prep process that they have to go through. And then it had to go and get, um, you know, ceramic treatment and some other treatment and tinted and this and that and blah, 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 blah. So it's like, okay, you'll, you'll get it in a couple of days and you, you're so anxious, but I didn't want to go. <laughs> I did not want to go see it. Cause you know what happens? You go see it and you're like, oh man, I want to take it right now. So I was like, okay, let me just be patient. I've been waiting all this time. I'll just continue to wait. So I waited, you know, they got everything. Big shout out to my little friend there, Rashid, uh, hooked up all the tinting and did all that good stuff. Got the car looking nice. So anywho, we did all that. And um, someone actually sent me, they're like, oh, I see your car is here. Here's a video of it. I was like, yeah, I know. But I didn't really want to see it. But thank you. Thank you. So then, uh, you know, we get it. And I'm like, all right, first night, let's do a little drive out. So I'll call my little crew, which is my husband and a friend, <laughs> two people. And I was like, hey, let's go do a little drive out tonight. Other people are not available. I was like, no problem. Let's do a little drive out. So when we we're doing a drive out now, our friend Naf is like, oh, man, this is an AMG. You got to put on the, the sports package. We got to hear the, the revving up and the plopping. And I was like, what? Listen, women order these things because it sounds good, right? But when it actually comes to using it, we don't know anything about no engine plopping and customizing this sound and that. Listen, I keep that in comfort mode pretty much all the time. But this is like a the big boy, right? So somebody saw somebody saw me yesterday and like, oh, I love it. Yeah, big engine men. Talking about the big engine and the this and that. And I was like, mm. I said, all I know, honey child, is when you get in, you press the start button and it starts and you look good and it takes you where you got to go. They said, oh, Lord, these things are a waste on women. And I probably have to agree that in about probably 95% of the cases, that's absolutely true. There are some women who really are into that sort of thing and they really enjoy it. But um, I got to tell you that I, I loved the concept of AMG and all the little pretty extra buttons that you get. <laughs> but don't ask me nothing about it. Don't ask me nothing about what it would. Okay. Strong will. Good morning. <laughs> Leanna says, speaking of burning down the house, what happened in West Bay last night at Kunk Point? So I don't know. We got some video footage of this. Uh, there was a fire last night, structural fire. Let me let me show it, share it with you guys. Um, oh, thanks, Alejandro, for clarifying, because as usual, you had me lost. <laughs> okay. Um, so let us have a look here, folks, at, um, let me see here now. Uh, okay, look at this house fire. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. 
lot of popping and popping and um it looks like it's fairly close to the building that we can see in the front because the flames boy they look kind of close but we have not yet heard uh what this is all about or what's going on i heard this was taken before the fire services showed up and i heard that they were there pretty quickly um they showed up on the scene but no details yet on what happened what caused it um i'm pretty sure that there weren't any injuries or anything like that so yeah we'll keep our ears out shamika good morning patricia blake in the house um buenos dias to miss alba good morning liana mr robert is here hell says morning auntie sandy had your allergy test to go okay let me give you guys an update so, um, as you know, I think last week I went to the ENT. Every morning I get up, I'm congested, like I'm super congested. And I've really just been kind of living with it and going with the flow. Um, do my little Vicks thing in the morning to kind of loosen up my sinuses. Um, but the I went to the ENT and I told you guys, he said, I have a deviated septum like on one side. The other side, very inflamed. And so he's thinking it's some sort of allergy that I have that's causing this, right? So he wanted to start with an allergy test, which I'm like, why didn't we just do the blood test? I'm kind of wondering why I did the skin test. I've never done the skin test before. So it was an interesting experience to have. But now I'm kind of thinking, let's just jump, let's skip that step and let's jump to the blood test. So I actually want to call Health City because someone mentioned in the comment section, which I didn't know, that they have it there. But I want to ask them about the turnaround time for their lab. Um, actually, let me message Shamari. Uh, yes. So anyway, I went and I wasn't really sure what to expect, right? I knew they were going to do the skin test, but I didn't know exactly what that meant, like how it works. I'm going to tell y'all. So they have, um, a little case with all these little tubes of like, I guess, samples of what they're going to be testing, right? So they did um, food allergies on one hand. I think there was like 22 or 21 of those. They did environmental allergies on the other hand. And maybe there was like 12 or 13 of those. And I had to take a sample of Zeus's hair. So I had to cut off a little bit of his hair yesterday and take that in. Because uh, they want to see if I have any, you know, dog allergies and specific to my pet as well. So I did that. And then um, I'm going to show you the allergy list. I do have it here actually. And so um, what they then do is they they write on you with a, a hand marker and label one through 20, whatever the numbers. And then they take the little samples and they dot it along with the matching number. So for food allergies, they were testing everything, pork and chicken and fish and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And I'd done an um, allergy test many, many years ago. So I was pretty confident that I didn't have any food allergies because at that time, I didn't have any, although I understand that food allergies, it is something you apparently can develop over time. So you may not have any, you know, I've heard of people like, oh, I've eaten lobster my whole life. And then all of a sudden later in life, you get a lobster allergy, right? So here, here's the list of what they were testing for. So I don't know how well you guys can see that, but everything, bananas, strawberry, lemons, like lots of food products. Um, like I said, pork, meat, turkey, beef. Potato, oysters, tomato, soy, tuna, shrimp, walnuts, green, something or another, 
So they were testing for everything in terms of food. I felt like I was like, mm, honey, chill. Let's just make sure chocolate not on the list. <laughs> Dairy, eggs, um, peanut, hazelnut, almond, wal walnut, green mix, codfish, tuna, shrimp. And then on the environmental, so there was 21 food um, items. And then on the other side, everything from guinea pig. <laughs> I was like, what? Bird feather, hamster, rabbit. I don't own any of those things, but they were testing dog dander, cat dander, birch tree pollen, grass pollen, ragweed. Uh, what was this one? Hold on. Let me see if I can tell y'all. Um, grass pollen, ragweed, lepus, something or another, storage mites, um, floor mites, mold, uh, something grass. Um, then they got the proper names, house dust mite, house dust mite, like two different kinds, uh, normal something. Okay. And histamine. So they mark them and they put all the list off and then they get like these little, I don't know what to call it. Little like, um, oh, almost like a little prick thing. I don't know exactly what the term is. But basically, they have to break the skin, which is what I didn't realize. <laughs> that to me was news. I was like, you're going to do what now? <laughs> you're going to be pricking my skin? So they're like, yeah, we have to, now that we put the, the allergen thing on your skin, we need to now go and break the skin under each one of those. And I was like, huh? Y'all know I don't like needles or anything, right? And they had to do 21 pricks on your hand. Now, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad at all. Um, and they have to open, they come in a, in a, in a secure pack. Obviously each allergen is a separate prick. So they had to do like 21 separate little, um, I don't know, what would you call them? I don't know what it is. It's kind of like a, I don't know what you'd call that, but anyway, something sharp so that they could actually prick the skin a little bit. And so they go and prick the skin underneath. And then you have to wait 20 minutes to see if you have a reaction. You can't scratch it. And they're like, if you feel it burning and tingling, that means that you have a reaction. So on the food side, happy to say no food allergies. It was fine. And you can actually see where they pricked me. You can see like, see these little dark marks right there? Yeah, that's kind of like where some of the prick marks are. No, see? Yeah, that's me getting pricked. So those little, those little marks will go away. But on the food side now, I mean, on the environmental side, honey, jail. Um, some of them welted up, some of them came up. And so we know that I'm allergic to environmental things, right? Which I was not surprised at, at all. So I think um, definitely on the list is uh, mites. So storage mites, floor mites. That means you got to keep your place clean. Dust mites. Um, of course, they're microscopic and everybody has them. Have you ever seen those videos where they're like, oh, yeah, you have mites that live on your face and they eat your dead skin and stuff. Oh, my God, it's so nasty. But they're all there for everybody. No matter how much you wash your face and scrub, they're there. And they actually are part of like they help you stay, you know, as long as they're not too many of them, I suppose. They help clean your face. Pretty gross, I know. You know, mites sleep with you and all this kind of stuff. So, um, they help clean your eyelashes. It's so disgusting if you've ever watched one of those videos, but they're microscopic. So you don't like ever see them, but apparently I'm allergic to mites. Um, 
And um, I think that, uh, so it was like dust mites, floor mites, storage mites. And I think she said ragweed or something as well. Can't remember Poland. So a couple of those came up. Nothing with the dog. Thank God. Zeus is safe. Even if I was allergic to him, he ain't going nowhere. He's lying down by my feet right now. He would not be going anywhere, honey chill. He is here to stay. So uh, now the doctor's saying it's recommended that you do the blood test because the blood test will give you the exact levels of, I was like, why didn't we just do the blood test first? Because hmm. um, the last time I did it, it was the blood test. So yeah, all right, I'll redo the blood test to have a current test and see what's going on. But nothing was like majorly, like nothing really was like they were swelled up a little bit. And so afterwards they had to put an antihistamine rub like on my arm, but nothing major. So I don't know. We'll do the blood test. We'll see what the blood test comes back and says, because uh, he really feels like there's some sort of irritant or something while my sinuses are acting up. All right. Thanks um, to Polar Bear. They were in the comment section yesterday and they did actually recommend, which I think is a good idea, an air quality test, which I'm happy to do. So they'll come in, have their experts come in um, and build, um, you know, build, <laughs> I was reading Liana's comment. Um, they'll have the experts come in and test the air quality. So I'm going to do that and I'll let you guys know what the results are. So we'll see. In the meantime, I'm supposed to just do the nasal rinse uh, twice a day, morning at night. And then he has me doing some nasal prescription spray as well. Here's the thing for umpteenth years i've been buying these nasal rinses i've even bought a couple of the devices and i've never used them because i'm a little bit squirmish with anything to do actually with like my sinuses and stuff like i'm one of those people you know when people go around Caymanians can probably relate to this when people go around doing stuff like what do we call it tickling their throat you know where they make that noise oh my god that bothers me so much when people do that. I'm just like, ew, don't do that around me. That's disgusting. Like I can't, the, the sound, I just can't take it. I don't like to hear people like snorting and all. I'm like, eh, please, you, you're, you're going to make me sick. Don't do that. Um, so I can't tickle my throat. I can't do any of that stuff. Like it's just, ugh. <sighs> so even when I get sick, you know, sometimes you got to, help yourself. I can't do any of that. I'm like, no, no, no. All I can do is blow my nose, massage my sinuses, Lord Jesus, and pray about it. Okay. So I've never used it. And he said, you got to use this. And I was like, oh man. So it's, he's like, it's not that bad. Start off with the one that you manually do. Cause I even have a machine. Somebody gave me one for Christmas. I have like, uh, not Christmas last year for my birthday, December, August. It's still in the box, brand new, never opened, I swear. It's underneath the counter. I've never opened it. It's a nice machine, and you do this. I was like, oh, man, I can't bring myself to it. Anyway, the doctor said, you got to listen to me. Because after he squirted my nostrils, five minutes later, they were completely, like, you could see, he showed me the before and after picture, world of difference, and I could breathe. Like, I was like, oh, my God, I haven't been breathing well for a minute. I can really breathe. And he's like, yeah, so this is what we're going to start doing. We're going to try to figure out what's causing it. And then, you know, we'll get you to breathing breath. I was like, wow. So, um, yeah, so I'm supposed to be doing that, but let me tell you the, the funniest thing that, <laughs> that happened. Right. So this was last week. I couldn't, I had to mentally work myself up to doing it. So I said, okay, I'm going to start this week. So I started Monday, Tuesday, 
Um, I read the directions because my other fear, which is just illogical, but it's a fear nonetheless, is I'm going to end up on an episode of, of The Monster Inside Me. You guys ever watch that show? Where you have people like, they go on vacation, next thing you know, they got a brain worm in their head because they ate uncooked pork. And I mean, listen, all kind of crazy stories. So I'm like, really like, oh my God, I don't want to end up on this, on an episode of Monsters Inside Me, right? Something crawling in my eyeball. Anything that you do with your, you know, (laughs) sinus cavity and stuff like that, you got to be careful. So you got to, you got to make sure that the water, you can't use tap water because, you know, you just can't use tap water. So if you use tap water, you got to boil it and da-da-da-da, kill it. I'm like, oh my God. So anywho, I worked up myself. I said, okay, I'm going to do it. So Monday, I did it. Tuesday, Wednesday, did it. Thursday. So yesterday, I was thinking about it. I was telling somebody, oh yeah, you know, I've been, I've been doing it. I'm not sure how well, but I've been doing it. In the mornings, I haven't gotten to twice a day yet, but I do it in the mornings. And then it occurred to me that I've actually been forgetting, listen to this. It comes with like a saline solution little kit. I've been forgetting to put that in the water. I remembered the first day and every other day I've forgotten to do it. So I've just been squirting regular water up my nostrils. (laughs) I mean, maybe it helps. I don't know. But it's probably the saline solution that really makes a difference. I was like, duh, don't ask. Anywho, um, I haven't had a chance to do it this morning because I was running late. So I'll do it after the show. But anyway. Yeah, so that's my that's my nasal journey. In case you you really wanted to know, um, oh God, this person says, "Girl, the saline stuff burns like a mf, but it really works." Lord Jesus, woo, honey, child. I just I just don't. Mm. Anyhow, um, so we will we will get there and figure it all out and see what will go on. Um, okay. Somebody says, oh, no, I can't mention his name. But somebody, they mentioned somebody that said, that's a so-and-so allergy, better known as stupidity allergy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. The other person says the racetrack and breakers is being worked on, so get some practice. By the way, hello, Birdie told me that a certain Type R is up for sale. If anybody interested, message me. <laughs> because now the Type R is sitting there catching dust. Oh, my gosh. Um, all right. That's Vince's ATVs on fire. Oh, somebody's got some news for me. Okay. They said that's Vince's ATVs on fire. He's the one that rents the ATVs down breakers. Someone set, sent this to me, but I don't know. Oh, you know what? Mm. Uh, somebody did say that to me last night. So I guess he stores his ATVs there. Oh my God. I wonder how that happened. Oh, no bueno. Okay. I'll see what more I can find out. Anybody know Vince? Tell Vince to give us a call. Hmm. Uh, So someone says, see if Polar Bear can use that massive fan thing to blow out the S out of your AC ducts. I have the same thing now with my sinuses. I think the weather constantly changing is making it worse. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Um, All right. 
Let me see. Okay. All right. So there was also a really serious accident up in East End this morning. Um, I'm hoping that everybody will survive it, but I'm actually hearing the initial reports is that it's two Jamaican men, one lady from Nicaragua. The lady from Nicaragua actually works at the bar there in East End. And um, the initial report is that one of the men may not have made it um, and that the young lady may actually lose her leg because she had a serious, um, you know, uh, leg injury. So we're going to send up a little prayer for them and hope that they're okay. Um, oh, Miss Strong Wilt, good morning to you. Asking if she can have this shirt. This is actually a dress, believe it or not. It's a, it's a full dress. Um, well, knee, knee length. Alejandra says, imagine finding out all along that you're allergic to the things that you love. Well, you know, I was kind of sitting there thinking, don't let it be lobster. Don't let it be shellfish. Because, boy, I love me some lobster and shrimp. Mm-hmm. Every time we got to dinner and I'm looking at the menu, my husband just looks at me. He's like, why are you even looking at the menu? Just ask them what lobster and shrimp dishes they have, because that's probably what you're going to get. <laughs> Not all the time, but I do love me a good seafood dish. Mm-hmm. Honey chill. Um, insurance help with this a while because I can only imagine the price um, for the allergy testing. So um, the one yesterday was covered 100% by my insurance. I don't know what kind of insurance plan y'all ha- get. Um, and I think the next one, if I go to that same place, they're like, oh, the copay is like 30 bucks or whatever. So yeah. Oh my gosh, Hell says, well, I hope Platin's not on the list. Trust and believe me. If they said to me you were allergic to Platin, I've been, I'm just leaving right now. Just forget it. <laughs> Nobody ain't going to stop eating no Platin. Your hand, we were talking about you earlier, saying that you're demanding some Burn Friday overtime. Not today. However, I have promised our listeners that we will definitely, definitely, definitely do an extra... Um, special once the trial of Mr. McKeever Bush is over, we'll do one in relation to all of my thoughts and feelings and everything about that. So that's coming. Stay tuned, honey jail. Um, Shaka Zulu says, good morning, Auntie Sandra and the world's best audience. Oh, look at your classmate giving y'all a big shout out. (sighs) Yes, Alejandro. I do not have any tattoos. No. Um, I think most of us could do without tattoos. I believe if it's tattoos are like a cultural thing, you know, like um, Samoan cultures and stuff like that, their tattoos actually mean something. Everybody else trying to get a little um, tramp stamp and whatever. I'm like, yeah, leave that to somebody else. So I'm not really a tattoo person. Um, did you take a uh, take pick of the courthouse with you as well so that they can test a piece of the courthouse. Oh. Oh, maybe I'm allergic to that 50-year-old courthouse. Mr. Goodlook. Hmm. I had not thought of that. I wonder what the air quality in there is like. Those old AC systems. Ugh. Oh, my God. That courthouse. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was talking to someone about this yesterday. And she's, she's like, oh, my God. You made me laugh. Um, she doesn't feel well a lot of the times and she's like, oh, you know, she wanted to come to court and see, I'm like, girl, stay home. I said, you come up in here and have an episode and the ambulance needs to come. They can't even get up in this building. Please don't come. Okay. This courthouse is sick and it probably gonna make you, you know, have an episode. So you just stay home and I'll tell you what's going on. One bathroom stall. So ugly. 
and not just ugly, but listen, a 50 year old bathroom can only do so much for you. Like seriously, y'all don't know how bad it is. And I, and I just visit there. I can, I can only imagine for the staff that have to work up in that courthouse. You know how they condemn the glass house for being a sick building? I would not be surprised if the next one on the list is that courthouse. That courthouse is just old and disgusting. Sorry, Madam Ramsey. <laughs> I know y'all do the best you can, but ugh. No, son. Mm-mm. I mean, heaven forbid. One person has to go to the bathroom, stay in there more than 30 seconds, and then you got to go. And there's only one bathroom. There's no. There's nowhere else to go. There's literally one bathroom and one stall in the bathroom. <laughs> so if more than one person has to use the bathroom, you are just out of luck. Lord Jesus, don't ever make me have one of my IBS moments up in there because mm, what a hot mess. Morning, Miss Linda, joining us from the beautiful island of Bermuda. So good to see you. She says, thank God for a little sunshine, which makes me feel cheerful. They've been having some marine. Uh, Liana says the gecko itch throat. You can scratch. You can't scratch your throat. No, I can't do it. Mm-mm. I can. And when other people do it, it bothers me as well. I'm like, please, I don't want to hear that. Oh, should have taken a piece of one of those MPs to see if you're allergic to any of them. Miss <laughs> Hells, we know I'm allergic to them already. We don't have to take a piece of them. Shout, please. Y'all know exactly who I'm allergic to. Like I said, I don't have any qualms telling y'all the truth about which MPs, in my opinion, just are not up to par at all. Y'all know the list. Mm-hmm. It would require a lot for, the, for them to turn around because, you know, I, I think a lot of this stuff is, um, it really is a personality character trait. And so if you're not an honest person, you're just not an honest person. I guess you could learn to not lie, but when it's ingrained in who you are, I think it's difficult. Or as my daughter says, trifficult. Mom, that's very trifficult. Yes, it's trifficult for these politicians to tell the truth. Anywho, um, what? Shamika, you watched an episode of The Monster Inside Me that was from K-Man? That's a lie. No way. Really? I never saw that episode. What did he have? I'm curious. Because we don't have too much here. We don't have like that bot fly thing and we don't have any poisonous snakes. And what what, what was it? A centipede? Uh, A mosquito bit him? I mean, I guess he could get like dengue or something. That could be an episode. Um, Celine, yes, that Navage thing, I think, is the one that I have sitting in the box. (laughs) That I've never even unpacked. So I, I, yeah, I got it sitting in the box <laughs> under the, under the cupboard in the spare bathroom. Lord Jesus. Oh my gosh. Um, Shaka Zulu says your issues are possibly humidity settings related. Mine works. Yeah. I think I'm also going to get a, um, which I had an air purifier, but my husband keeps moving stuff out of my house and giving it to other people and moving it all over the place. <sighs> what a hot mess. I tell you. Miss Olive. So someone broke into my car last night. There wasn't anything of value in it except for $4 and a little bit of coins. But whoever it is, 
They come, they can come back tonight, same time, same place, and I will leave five dollars in it for whoever it is. Well, don't encourage that, Miss Olive. <laughs> no, sir. Uh no, 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 no. Um Everton says perfect. One would be used in a toilet and then the person could be using there's no urinal in the women's toilet, by the way, Everton. There's just the one toilet, sir. I don't know if you've been in a women's bathroom, but we don't need urinals. I'm just saying we're not quite built the same way. Uh, Scott says older government owned buildings in Cayman are moldy and roachy. Ew. The visual, Scott, the visual. Oh, got something from pool, from the pool in his eyes. Oh my God. What episode, what season and episode? I want to go look it up. Mm. That sounds interesting. Hunter says, how did the poll do this morning, Miss Sandra? I'm trying to get the get those brownies. Funny enough, this is what I was doing late last night. I was going to make it a trivia question, but I'll tell you all. So um, my daughter has some kind of dress as a character day. So she went as Pikachu this morning. She dressed up. She, she was all in character, honey child, layering everything. So black stockings. And then she's like, you know, my little undies are multicolored. So I'm going to put on my black shorts. She always wears shorts underneath her little dresses anyway. And she put on her little tights. And then she put on her little Pikachu hoodie. It is so cute. And then she actually made a little Pikachu character at school out of like yellow um, paper and the little ears and everything. So she took that and she did um, her little, she got two braids. So one, oh my gosh, sorry. One is um, black and one is yellow to go with the Pikachu color. Oh, she was all in character this morning, y'all. Little black shoes. Um, so they're having some kind of fun day today. She's like, oh, I need to take a blanket. I need to do this. I was like, it's so funny how you can remember all these things. And when it's, Library day, we can't find those library books. Mm-hmm. Can't remember to take those to school. <laughs> so, anyway, y'all parents know how it is. Um, so different people are bringing stuff. So she requested that I make brownies, nut free, of course, because some kids have allergies. And uh, so last night I was up into the wee hours making my brownies and getting them ready to be shipped out this morning. So she's like, there are... I think she said 12 kids in her class. And I said, okay, I'll give you some extras so that your teachers and assistant teachers and everybody can get. And so she got all packed up with a whole container full of brownies this morning. There's still some left in the kitchen. And you know her, oh, I want to help put them in a container. I'm like, okay, it's good when kids want to help. Oh, can I have this little piece? I said, no, ma'am. You haven't even had breakfast yet? Go eat a banana. Talking about brownies. Anywho, um... Oh, yes. Thank you. Shaka Zulu says there's a big difference between an air purifier and a humidifier. And I need the latter. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, Leave $5. Leave five licks upside the head, says Aliad. <laughs> He's not encouraging Ms. Olive to leave anybody's money. That person probably on drugs and looking for how much? How much is it to buy a crack rock? Does anybody know? I don't know. But probably looking for $20 to go buy a crack rock or whatever. So sad. Um, oh my God. What, Shamika? I need to go look up that episode. Whoa, that sounds crazy. I haven't watched it in a little minute, but ooh, honey shot. All right. Uh, let's um let listen, Linda moment. You guys ready? Okay. <laughs> 
Let me pull up my notes here, honey child. Give me one second. Let me open up my Microsoft Word notations. Yes. I'll put it over in this screen over yes. So. Okay. All right. Listen, Linda, let me refresh your memory about what the rules are. Um, this is a, um, uh, a jury trial with Mr. McKeever Bush. So what that means is none of you will comment on anything that I'm going to have to say. I'm just giving you guys the facts as it was shared. No opinion at all. That will be for a future after show. Okay. So uh, ensure that you follow the rules. If you break the rule and you start commenting in the comment section, any thoughts about this trial, you all can talk about other stuff if you want, but not what I'm about to share. Unfortunately, I will block you. It's as simple as that. There'll be no coming back from it. Okay. Oh, somebody just told me the, the price of a, a rock, uh, crack cocaine, $10, $10. So cheap. What the hell? Oh my God. And we do have another video here too of the fire from last night. Only $10? That's it? Wow. Damn, that's cheap. Hmm. Hmm. Okay then, $10 for... And I mean, is that enough? Is one rock enough to do anything? I mean, not, we're not going to talk about this. Anywho. Um, wow. I didn't know it was so cheap. Morning, Miss Romelia. Good morning, Lanny. So those are the rules. Don't make any comments about what I'm about to tell you. And I'm going to read through. By the way, um, so because I had to do my allergy testing at 1.30, I was a little bit late to court. Uh, oh, shoot. Hold on. I want to tell you all something as well this morning. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I have a special, special, special segment coming up, uh, a video I'm going to play. So I do want you all to um, let me just double check how much lead time I need because I want to make sure I'm on time with this. Um, so we've got the UCCI Dr. Nathaniel Connolly interview today. Oh my God, y'all do not want to miss this man. He is amazing. So we've got that. And then we do have a video from um, HSA. Let me tell y'all now. Um, hold on. I got to just calculate the, the minutes I need. Uh, so roughly, it's like an hour and a half today. So 10.30, 9.30. So about 9 o'clock, we're going to go into these videos. Listen, he is amazing. I can't say enough. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Okay. So yesterday was um, uh, what's the two complainants, okay? I was going to say, the judge tried to string me up in court for nothing. I didn't even do anything. He was like, are you recording? And I was like, who, who are you talking to? Because you're talking to me. I'm like, you talking to me? Your honor? <laughs> I mean, who? And he's like, yes, you. And I'm like, recording what? So there are rules for media in court. We are not supposed to record audio or record video or take pictures or anything like that. We all know the rules with all due respect, Your Honor. And nobody in media here in the Cayman Islands is foolish enough to break any of the court's rules. I, I assure you, like I said, I'm not built for jail time. And so, no, sir. And I was like, why would I, why would I even need to record it? Record it for what? You know, in the States, they would even have like a professional sketch artist 
that's sitting there sketching the people in court. We ain't got nothing like that. And I don't, I listen, I draw stick figures and that's about it. So I can't even um, do any kind of sketches or anything. Now, media is permitted to be on their phone, but, you know, not like sitting there having a conversation about nothing. Sometimes we have to check in or we have to send a little quick little message or whatever. I normally actually, because I have my laptop open anyway, I have the WhatsApp app on my laptop and I try to communicate that way. But this particular thing, I, I did pick up my phone briefly and I don't know what he saw. I do have a um, portable, my own portable Wi-Fi, um, what they call the MiFi device, which I had plugged in because I was trying to charge it. So I had that plugged into my laptop charging that. And that's so I can own, I can have my own Wi-Fi on the go. Because again, half the time, the court Wi-Fi doesn't work, <laughs> you know? Ugh, the technology in that building, just not, not the best. So I tried as much as I can remember, take my own Wi-Fi device with me. Big shout out to Flow, And that works 99% of the time, no issues. Um, so I don't know if he saw that because I did have it plugged in. Then at one point I unplugged it and put it in my bag. And then I had picked up my phone. I was looking at a quick message. I don't know what he saw, but he was like, you, and right in the middle of court, like everybody's looking. I was like, huh, me? I was like, no, sir. No. Mm -mm -mm -mm. Don't, don't, mm -mm. You, you focus on your little child. Don't be talking to me, sir. That's what I was thinking in my head. But out loud, I was like, uh, no, your honor. Ain't nobody recording nothing. Nothing, nothing that salacious going on here to record. I was like, what the heck? Uh, Damien says, how do they check for hidden mini cameras? They don't. Um, I mean, security, I guess. Listen, if I wanted to record, there's no way that they would even ever know that. But I mean, I'm not interested in breaking the low court laws. Good morning, caller. Hey, Sandy. First time caller here. Hey, good morning. How you doing? I'm great. Well, question, why is it that ones are the media is not allowed in court Cayman courtrooms? No, we're allowed in the courtroom. I mean, for, for recording. I mean, I've been in oh. courtrooms. Just quickly, I, I've been in courtrooms where mm -hmm. these judges say some serious things that are not legal. I mean, mm -hmm. some serious things. And they get away with it. Mm. Um, That's their rules. I mean, I was saying this a couple of days ago, like in the U.S., you know, everything is live streamed and whatever. But came out different, honey chill. I don't know. That's just how it works. And that, that's their rules. So we, we we have to follow the rules because otherwise we're not getting thrown in jail. <laughs> so um, I don't know. I mean, it's a I'm question I'm that I I'm going to say this quickly. But... I'm going to leave you to comment. But I've been in one courtroom where the judge says the court accept, uh, what's the word, uh, when think something is not corroborated, um, but is not um, proved, there's a word in court that you use. Un, As she un, said, the court came and courts uh -huh. accept those things because the police said they found no evidence. And I was just sitting. It wasn't my affair or anything, but I was yeah. just interested in the matter. Oh. And the judge said she, had, she accepted. And, and, and the, the person, the lawyer said, but Your Honor, the police even said there is no evidence to back this up. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, this is crazy. Mm. I've never seen anything like it before. I'll leave it to comment still. All right, my dear. Thank you so much. Yeah, we touched on this. I think it was Monday or so, but I mean, it's just their rules, honey chill. I don't know. No recording, no this, no that, blah, 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 blah. So that's why I sit there and I try to pay very, very close attention and bring you guys almost verbatim what is being said. 
Now, um, some people, the, the Compass reporters seem to know shorthand. I've never really seen Wendy, but she's old enough where she probably does know shorthand. Because there, there's a point in time where when you went to journalism school and <clears throat> probably other things, they taught you shorthand, right? It's almost like a, it's like a foreign language. It's like another language. I look at it. I'm like, what the heck is this? Some kind of Chinese looking thing. So I do not know shorthand. I have to admit, I don't know shorthand. I've never even attempted to learn to learn shorthand because I'm at that age where I came into my, you know, youth as computers were really coming into their own. So when I was in university, you know, we were getting windows, we were typing our papers in the computer, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I was the kid that showed up to law school from day one with my laptop and hand typing all my notes. And to me, it was just better because my notes were always nice and neat. And then I'd print them out. Honey child, I think I actually still have some of my, I've kept a couple of my note folders maybe, but if you actually saw, let me see if I can pick up maybe probate law or something. Um, I actually have still some of my notes and I actually had a formula in law school that worked um, really, really well for me in terms of my my notes. And then I would always have people come afterwards and they'd be like, oh, can I borrow your notes? Because they were so organized. I don't know if I have, I was going to see if I could pull up. Try to keep things a really long time. Um. Anyway, I don't know. Uh, anyway, I mean, the dates, the notations, I think I have some still from the PPC, not from law school, law school, but I probably still have some from the PPC. Uh, but, you know, I had a really, like uh, this column, the topic, the, the, listen, it was well organized. So for me, that worked um, really well, because then when I went back and did my revision, I was studying from something I could actually read, make sense of. Because, you know, when you're writing really fast, half the time you can't go back and understand anything you wrote. You're like, oh, what, what was I saying? Whatever. So I kind of have continued that tradition into, um, I was trying to see if I could find one to just show you all a little sample. But anyway, I've continued that into, um, you know, what I do with not not quite the same, but what I do with um, uh, what I do when I'm in court. So I don't tend to write very often. Occasionally I do, but I would probably say 90% of the time, what I do is I actually type in court because I'm actually a very, very fast typist. And um, I, you know, can type really fast. And so that makes more sense for me to actually get my notes down. Mm, I'll have to see if I can find. Uh, huh. I'll see if I can find an example for you guys. But anyway, so I was a bit surprised when he asked me that question. Actually, I was like, huh? I, I wasn't even sure he was talking to me. I was like, I'm looking around like, who? Who are you talking to? Me? Okay. Uh-huh. No, sir. That would not be me. Mm -hmm. So uh, let me go through and now share with you what my notes say. And I, I, 
I take a lot of notes. Like I write down a lot of stuff verbatim, like a lot of quotations. And again, going back to um, my law school days, um, you know, I'm able to listen and take in and type it all, kind of like transcribe it in that fashion. Okay, let me see now. All right, so I'm just going to read the notes. Like I said, no comments, please. And um, we'll get to we'll get to it here in a second. Okay. Uh-huh. Huh. Anywho. Hmm. 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 Um. Give me one second here. I'm thinking. Mm. Mm. I think I gave, <laughs> I would actually give people my notes because they were so good. People were like, oh my gosh, I missed class. And I was like, here, just take the whole darn thing. Um, hold on one second. I think I still have kept one folder. <sighs> oh, Lord have mercy. Uh, oh gosh. Okay. Um, yeah. So I'm going to show you. Oh, this stuff is so old now. Um, so this was this was from the PPC. Wow, this is back in 2010. Oh my God, where is the time going? All right, so I found this folder. Um, this is the only one I think I've kept. All the other ones. So this is from the PPC back in 2010 was when I did this, and this is um, came on probate and succession. So this is like how I organize my notes. Super organized. I'm a very very organized student. Trust me, you got to have good study habits. But this is what my notes looked like, right? So this is wills and probate. I would do the date. So this was October 25th, 2010. Look look at how I would take my notes. Subject, wills and probate. And then the main points over in red. And then these are like the, the notes over here. And then I do like, okay, section 29 of the succession law, bullet points, bam, 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 bam. Cases here. So I was organized, honey chill. Um, because, you know, when and the thing about it is once you're organized like this, you kind of know what's coming in terms of ex possible exam questions as well. But this was super, this is how I did it. So um, application for simple administration, ad administrator, new administrator, a will. And I, and I did it in a way. So boom, if this is the situation, then this, and then these are the steps. So if you have no administrator or will, uh, that means that I see a little dash died totally intestate. So that's what legally the term is. Then you apply rule 33. And rule 33 sets out the order of priority in those circumstances. And then that is called clearing off. So that was the next point. Determine the marital status. So number one, all this stuff is still good law because nothing has changed at wills and probate. So um, the clearing off process, what is their marital status? Are they married or the divorce, whatever. Um, so surviving spouse is the first in line. This is when y'all be trying to fight over your wills and stuff or if they, they left no will. Their surviving spouse gets it first. That's why when they be marrying your little old man, they're 25 and he's 85, you know what the deal is. Um, and then you go through the rest of the list. So that's rule 33. So you, you look at the probate, you look at rule 33. Um, and it says that it's not necessary to clear off people in the same category, but it would be good practice to communicate with them to ensure that there's not multiple applications. So this is who's going to file the administration with the court. Right. And then I go to citation process duties once the grant of probate has been made. Section five of the um, succession law says that the administration has to be completed in 12 months, but an extension can be granted by the court. So, listen, I could read all of this now, 
and it still makes total sense, right? Because when you know it's organized, they're organized. So on the 18th of October, I was there was the opening clause, disposing of the body, mm-hmm. section 3.3 of the succession law. Uh, no more than four people can apply for grant of probate. Um, don't apply. It says basically don't bother appointing more than that. Substantial estate may need up to four people. And it's good practice to appoint more than one to guarantee checks and balances. And then it talks about the exception. If there's a single beneficiary to the estate uh, for convenience and expense, um, preferable to appoint a single beneficiary as the executor. And reasons to pick non-lawyers, charging clauses. So this is basically how I did all of all of my notes for every single subject, right? I, I came up with my own little formula that worked extremely well. So when I'm in court, it's kind of like the same thing. It's not quite as organized as this, I must admit. Um, but nonetheless, I get uh, essentially all of the same um, information, right? So yesterday was the 22nd. I'm going to go through and read uh, what came out. Now, again, no commentary on what I'm saying. This is a live. Um, and, and the thing is, you can sit in court. And so there's no issue with us reporting on what happened. You just can't have any opinion and comment at this particular time. Now, the jurors have been instructed not to look at this stuff, not to watch social media, not to pay attention to any of it, so that they can just make their decision based on the evidence before them. Okay. So victim number, complainant number one. Okay. Um, even terming them as a victim is incorrect. So complainant number one, um, this individual, the allegation really is that he kissed her on her shoulder two times. It happened in front of a, another civil servant who will be taking the stand. So today we're expecting the spouse of this victim, uh, complainant number one, and another civil servant who was there. So both complainants are civil servants, okay? And they were at this, again, CTO conference, which is Caribbean Tourism Organization conference that they had back in 2022. We were the host country for change coming out of COVID. This was like a big deal. And so um, this was September 16, 2022. So I'm not calling any names of any of the people, even the other eyewitnesses and stuff. I'm not calling their names, okay? Um, what they did is these individuals gave a police interview like a week or so after the incident. And that interview is called an ABA. Now, for the world of me, I can't remember what ABA stands for. I'll find out for Monday, but I can't remember right now. But what they try to do is, especially for complainants of certain types of offenses, such as sexual offenses, this type of assault, they try to capture their interview as quickly as possible after the incident. And there's a lot of logical reasons for that. Obviously, your, your memory's fresh. And, you know, memories fade. Like two, now we're talking about two years later almost. Going into two years later, you can't quite remember, you know, so you go by what you said at the time. Um, so. Mm-hmm. So um, she, complainant number one gave her interview. So what they do in court is they play the interview first. The jury is able to see it. The complainant is there with very strict orders. You can't respond to the video. 
You can't have any facial expressions. And the jury's instructed, just look at the video. Don't look at the complainant and don't, you know, get involved with the complainant in any way, whatever. Okay. So, um, she said in her interview, so a lot of these are going to be direct quotations. She said, I feel I shouldn't have to be here. And I'm, I'm going to just leave the quotes for you to interpret them. Okay. Uh, no, this is, this is not ABH. This is ABA. It's like a type of interview. Can, can one of these lawyers, anybody, any lawyer listening to me, is it ABE or ABA? Can somebody help me this morning? Um, let me ask my little, uh, what does, I think it's ABA or ABE stand for read the type, um, hold on. These lawyers know of interview, uh, taken after. Oh, somebody says achieving best evidence, ABE. Maybe. Yeah, that would make sense. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, yes, that could be it. A-B-E. Okay. And this lawyer is typing. She's going to confirm for me. All right. That makes sense. Okay. So um, she went on to say that if it happened in a bar, maybe I wouldn't do anything about it. I'm, I'm not going to interpret any of this. But when we have, um, yes, ABA is achieving best evidence. It's simply that they record. Thank you very much. There we go. Um, I'm not going to interpret any of this, but when we do, when it's all said and done, and I do my after show, I'll get into what my thoughts are on some of these things, okay? Not for now, no thoughts. Uh, it goes on, she says, and I have a daughter, and if I don't speak out, uh, before I wasn't brave enough and I wasn't smart enough, and I was reduced to feeling like a little girl. Uh, she was asked if she was forced to, because she took um, some days before deciding that she wanted to proceed. She said if she was forced to do so by anyone. And her response was, at first, I was processing it. She started crying. I was combing my hair in the bathroom when I decided to give a statement. Uh, she spoke of other, um, the other uh, uh, complainant showing the bite mark or a mark with teeth on her hand. And, um, you know, the defense attorney then said to her, so we're talking about when you're looking at the video, we're talking about mere uh, minutes or less because it was like th a three minute window of when all of this went down. Asked her questions about um, the stumbling. So in her initial ABE interview, she said that he was stumbling. And when they played the video, the question of how do you interpret, what did you mean by stumbling? Because stumbling meant he was falling over. In the video, he wasn't falling over. So the complainant attempted to clarify what she meant by that. And she said, Maybe stumbling wasn't the right, right word, but she felt he was unsteady um, on his feet. And to her, that indicated some form of intoxication. Uh, the question then was put to her by the defense KC um, 
Miss Bennett, what the heck is her name again? Bennett Jenkins. Oh, well, are you aware that Mr. Bush has two arthritic knees and nerve and disc issues in his lower back? She said, no, I'm not aware. Why would I? She's kind of like, why would I be aware of his medical issues? Anywho. So that was then, and you see, this is how the defense, they'll ask questions or they'll interject something, say, oh, were you aware of this? Because now they're planting in the mind of the jury, this is how the process works, that this is this could explain why he was walking this particular way, not that he was intoxicated. Again, no opinions. I'm just telling you what the question was and why they were asking the question. So the answer, um, if they knew each other, and, you know, was he welcoming? And isn't it in the Caribbean, people tend to welcome each other in a very warm manner, uh, perhaps more so than other places in the world, you're likely to hug and did it. And she agreed, yes, we are very, you know, warm and fuzzy people, I guess, in the Caribbean. And, uh, you know, the lawyer said, him embracing you is just a warm and friendly embrace like he gave everybody else that night. He was walking around hugging and embracing all kinds of people. Um, then the question came up of what made her change her mind. Why, why? And I don't know if it was a mind change. Cause like she said in her initial interview, she was still processing it. But nonetheless, the question was what made you change your mind? And, uh, she said that she had been subject to this kind of behavior in the past and she needed to stand up for herself. Okay. And she also, um, this really became a point that the defense honed in on. At some point in the video, she can be seen putting her hand on his back. So it, the, I don't want to say that they were trying to say he, she was asking for it. I'm going to leave my thoughts about that later on. But, oh, you're putting your hands on his back. Like, there didn't seem to be a problem if we're looking at just the video. So she said that, in fact... What she was trying to do was to stop him. She said, I was trying very hard to stop him and keep him in the space where uh, we were so that he didn't go further into the event to embarrass himself, my minister, and the Cayman Islands government. Again, I have thoughts, but we will leave those thoughts for later on. So complainant number two, and I did miss some of her um, cross-examination because my allergy test, I was a little bit late. Apparently, I was told by the other journalist that CMR's name came up um, about the post. And um, for the record, in her interview as well, she mentioned CMR, uh, me specifically, that on the day of the event, I think it was the day, that same night that I actually messaged her and said um, something like, girl, dot, dot, dot. And then I attempted to call her twice, and that was it. Mm -hmm. Okay, that was the extent of that. Uh, the second complainant, who I caught all of her interviews, so this one's a little bit more detailed, was pretty interesting. And uh, this is what was said. She shared that um, she had been working the event as well. Um, although she's a civil servant, she was working in a different capacity with a private company. So she was not working like in her civil service job. And um, she was had a long day and was tired, was hungry, was going to go to the bar, try to get a drink, try to see if there's any food. And she saw him sitting in a chair and in her words, he was visibly swaying in the chair and had a cup of something in his hand. So she can't say what it was, but he had a cup of something in his hand. He was swaying 
And the cup was also swaying and actually spilling over. She And a lot of what she says now is verbatim. I was concerned right away. Seems he was drinking and that concerned me. She said, I may not have been as concerned before I was a civil servant. He was swaying his head. Wouldn't let me leave. I just needed to ensure that he didn't get aggressive. I was very sweet and smiling and didn't want to didn't want him to get aggressive. I have so many thoughts about this that we will reserve until that special show. She went on to say um, he was odd and creepy and she was uncomfortable. She used the word uncomfortable multiple, multiple times. And she used the word bizarre a lot, right? To explain uh, her encounter. She also said, I am the only, she said, like she was thinking, am I the only one that noticed that the speaker is not in good shape at all? I think he's drunk. I think he gave me a hickey on my hand. And then at some point she, um, and it kind of goes, you know, her testimony is kind of going back and forth, but at some point she actually was able to get away, went and stood up next to the other complainant who she didn't know anything about anything happening to her. And they were talking and she said, Oh my gosh, I don't know. I just had this weird experience with the speaker. Something happened. And I think he did something to my hand. And the other person's like, are those teeth marks on your hand? And she's like, what? And she said that she actually lifted off her glasses because she's of a particular age. Um, she lifted off her glasses, you know, she probably needs them for distance. And she looked at her hand and she was shocked to see that indeed there was some kind of teeth marks on her hand. And so she said, that looks like teeth marks, teeth indentations on my hand. This is bizarre. She said at one point she was hiding from behind the pillar in the um, in the reception area. You know, there's different little areas. She said, I was hiding behind the pillar and looking around. People were trying to get him to leave. She explained that, and I quote, I have a delayed response. So in other words, she doesn't necessarily process something as it's happening. She has a delayed response. And again, she used the word bizarre. She said, I started to get concerned told my husband, I think the speaker of the house actually bit me. This is the most bizarre thing that has ever happened to me. Um, she then felt like she needed to tell her work bosses. So she made phone calls to her immediate boss, who I'm not going to say who that is, because that would narrow down the scope of who she is. And then she made another phone call to the cabinet secretary. And um, she said that she spent 20 minutes after this incident, sitting in her car in at the Ritz-Carlton, speaking to the cabinet secretary because she felt like his presence on the phone, he has a soothing voice, and that helped her, I guess, calm her down. I don't know. Um, so she told her bosses what happened. She said, it's inappropriate, and it's a risk where government is concerned. But she said in her mind, she said, I'm not sure if this is a crime. So she was telling them at the time what she was thinking. She says, I'm not outraged. I'm feeling very uncomfortable about all of this. Not sure if it's a crime to be a drunk old dude. And it's an exact quote. Not sure if it's a crime to be a drunk old dude that puts a hickey on someone's hand. <laughs> 
I felt a sense of, should I have done something afterwards? But there were all of these people needed to make sure that I was okay. There's a lot that people get. There's a look, sorry, that people get when they're intoxicated. And he had that uh, glossy look. Um, He had some idea of who I was, but didn't know exactly who I was in the moment. The only time, and she's was talking about, you know, in the past, she's had numerous experiences with him. And this was the only time that he had spoken to her and didn't ask how her mother was doing. So there was things that stood out about it where she's like, this is totally wrong. Something's off, right? So she explained that. She said that he also never called her or referred to her by name ever once. Um, she said he hugged me a little longer than was comfortable And I tried to move myself in a position so that there was less contact. The thing about drunk people is that you don't want to get them angry. You just want to extricate yourself, um, extricate as easily as possible. I don't have time for creepy old men to be grabbing at me. He sucked on my hand, which is terribly uncomfortable, lines he shouldn't have crossed. She said that um, she started heading towards others to block him from having further access to her. She was not aware that anything had happened, referring to the other complainant. Uh, She said that she didn't take a picture because, again, she was trying to process it. And, you know, she didn't think that this was going to go anywhere. She had reported it. She said, I sat in my car for 20 minutes. I talked to cab secretary. He was soothing. Um, He shouldn't. He now referring to Mr. Bush. He shouldn't be drunk in public like that, and he shouldn't be groping people. I'm in a committed marriage. So she said that he started to ask about her husband, which she found to be very unusual, and it seemed to put her on on edge. And she even said, you know, in her younger years, yeah, she was young, she was whatever. But now she's in a committed uh, marriage, and she says, I've taken this seriously, like her marriage and her commitment, and it was disheartening. What did I do? Mm. This was a violation of what the Speaker of the House should be doing, desecrates that. So in other words, like he desecrates that. Swaying and drinking, sloshing around. He wasn't his sober self. He was kind of incoherent. All of this was odd and surreal and a bit shocking. So that was her her video, her interviewer, ABE evidence. So now what they will do is today, this morning, she is actually going to take the stand Johan, we're going to delete your comments. I need you to not make any comments whatsoever. Are y'all paying attention? Listen carefully now. Don't make any comments about anything relating to anything about what comes into your head right now, okay? Um, so today she will take the stand and then be cross-examined. Let's take a quick break, folks. 13th of April at Festival Green Kamana Bay, get ready to experience the culinary capital of the Caribbean to support local restaurants, to celebrate Cayman heritage, to feel the rhythm and dance the night away with family and friends. Get ready to taste. Get your tickets online now. Visit tasteofcayman.org. All right, folks, um, make sure that you get ready for this amazing um, Taste of Cayman event. Um, 
So, Johan, stop with the comments. The next one you make, you're going to get blocked, and your blocking will be permanent. Mm-hmm. Why y'all like to be trying me? Do, do, do I look like the kind of person you should try on a Friday? Cha. Don't make any comments now, Johan. You'll have more than ample opportunity to do so. We're going to have her after show. Y'all don't listen very well. Okay. Damon, he ain't get put in a permanent corner and then he's not going to be happy. Mm-hmm. Y'all better pay attention. We're not discussing the matter. Johan, can you pay attention? Did you hear what I said? I'm going through and giving you the facts only of what transpired. There'll be no discussion. Oh, did you not hear that part? There'll be no comments from you all. I'm not making any comments. I'm reading verbatim the notes that were taken. How you get into, oh, then why are we discussing it? We are allowed to report on it. Factual reporting, and that is it. Pay attention. Okay. Sure. No, sir. Diana said to block him, Auntie Sandy. Kiss my teeth. Oh, boy. Oh, hard head. Yeah. I can see what his poor mommy had to go through. No, sir. Cameron says that is Chris whispering in your hands ear. Both of, the, both of them can get in my boot here in a second. Make him, make him continue. Mm-hmm. Okay. So listen. Two amazing interviews coming up. HSA, um, the maternity ward. First of all, let me tell y'all. When I had my baby, you know, having a baby, nothing, you know, the whole labor process, whatever. I did a C-section. Nothing really fun about it. But listen, bringing life into this world is the most amazing thing that you will do as a woman. Trust and believe me. I cried. There is nothing. When she first came out, I'm like, oh, my God. She's got all her little toes and fingers and a head. This is amazing. Uh, my husband was there. Everybody thought he was a doctor, though. You know, they assume every Indian is a doctor. <laughs> he was there um, in the in the delivery room. Um, you know, I'm so grateful to the doctors, but the the maternity ward staff because we were there every single day, even after I came out of the hospital five times at least a day or more, because she was in the NICU for an entire month. And so we were constantly back and forth. My husband obviously is back at work. I wasn't, well, I worked for myself, but, you know, back and forth. And it was just, it was a lot. And the, the maternity ward staff are amazing. And the lady that you're going to see here, Annette, she was actually working there at the time in the NICU. Um, I think she might be head of the, head of the NICU, actually. But um, I can't say enough about the NICU staff and just the maternity staff in general. It's such a vulnerable time. You know, after you've had a C-section, you can barely walk. You can't really bathe yourself. You have to rely on people. And so these people are absolutely amazing. So we had an opportunity recently to sit down with Annette and talk about the maternity services there. And then coming up after that is the Ormond Panton Lecture, which um, is the one that just happened at, at uh, UCCI a couple of weeks ago. Let me explain something about the lecture that's actually very, very important for you all to understand, Okay. It's called the Ormond Panton Lecture Series, and it is being done. It's a lecture series in his honor. It doesn't mean that the lecture, the individual lectures are about him. 
So I think that um, this is where some people are kind of confused. Like, oh, I thought his speech would have been about Omar. No. So the preliminary comments are about, um, you know, um, Ormond Panton and his life and his work and whatever, all the amazing things that he did. But then what they do is um, the individual speaker, I guess, decides on the area of topic. Dr. Nathan Connolly is a phenomenal speaker. So you guys are in for a treat this morning. Get another cup of coffee, get some Milo and some bread and whatever it is you have this morning. Sit back and enjoy. All right, folks, we're here today at Health Services Authority um, in the maternity ward, one of the fun places, I think. Yes. But when you come to the hospital, uh, you tend to leave with really good news. Yes, thankfully. <laughs> right? most, maybe yes. one bundle, maybe two bundles yes. or more of, um, you know, something that you're just going to love forever. So we are here with um, one of the midwives here at the Health Services Authority. So please just introduce yourself to our listening audience and tell us a little bit um, about who you are and what you do here at the HSA. Okay, uh, my name is Annette O'Brien and I am a registered midwife, uh, registered nurse midwife, and I've been here for almost 16 years in total now. Wow. Yeah, so I did my general nurse training first and then I went back and did midwifery. And I'm 20 years midwife last month, actually. That was my 20-year anniversary. Amazing. Well, congratulations. Thank you. So it's safe to say that in those 20 years, you have delivered and assisted oh, with the deliverance of a lot of babies. Yes, that's correct. Yes. 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 <laughs> You've yes. seen them. Yes, definitely. <laughs> a lot. I wish I'd kept a record, actually. That's the only thing I would say to anybody going into this now is keep a record. But yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it is a great job. When you see faces out and about in the community, like, oh, I remember you. I know, I know. It's so nice to meet people. And as, as their babies are getting big, you know, and some of them now are teenagers. Yes, mm. absolutely. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the um, maternity ward. Mm -hmm. Like I said, you know where it is if you've ever had a baby and you've yes. had to come here. Yes. Um, but there are a lot of people who don't really know yes. much about the maternity ward. So give us yes. a little rundown on where it's located. Uh, yes. So for people who don't know or haven't been into us before, we're located on the ground floor mm -hmm. of the main hospital building um, at, the, at HSA. And um, you come in through the atrium, we're right at the back, straight down that corridor and over on the right hand side. And then you'll see maternity sign posted. Mm -hmm. um, and we have 13 beds in total. And then we have three delivery rooms. Mm -hmm. And we're in one of them today. Um, and our aim, is to provide the highest level of care that we can to mm -hmm. the women and the, the mothers and the babies of the Cayman Islands um, by providing high quality care throughout, whether mm -hmm. it's antenatally, intranatally, which is in labor, mm -hmm. and then in the postpartum period. Yes. Yeah. And you know, having gone through this experience only once, <laughs> I must say that it's a really vulnerable time Yes. for uh, not just the woman who's having the baby, but mm. the entire family. There can be unique yes. circumstances. Yes. Like in my case, I had a preemie, so I got very attached to the maternity ward yes. through the NICU unit, which you guys are absolutely amazing, I must say. Thank you. Um, so, you know, everyone will have a different and unique experience, but I think the vulnerability of, um, you know, being in such a position, you're trying to carry this baby to term, bring yes. it healthy into this world, mm. and all the stresses and everything that go with even a normal delivery. Yes. So tell Absolutely. us about the importance and supportive options that are available here 
at the HSA mm -hmm. um, for women who are, you know, like I said, at their most vulnerable, really. Yes. So um, we're fortunate that we have the only NICU in the Cayman Islands. Mm -hmm. um, we have an excellent neonatal intensive care unit here, as mm -hmm. you've just mentioned, and you've experienced. Um, and we are able to cater for premature babies or other newborns that may have complications. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, we're, it's a very, of course, vulnerable time and mm -hmm. scary time for parents. Um, but we're there to support them. We have fully trained uh, neonatal intensive care unit nurses. Mm -hmm. And um, in the event then, in the rare case where you know, additional care may need to be provided, mm -hmm. we are able to send the baby overseas. Right. Um, with, in co conjunction with the overseas transfer team. And we're very lucky, I suppose, with our location, that we're mm -hmm. really an hour away from, um, you know, an amazing choice of hospitals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I mean, I, I we'll speak about the NICU here in just a second. But um, prenatal services, I mean, there are birthing classes yes. that the yes. HSA offers. Yes. So there's really a whole array of um, services that are available mm -hmm. from the second that a woman finds out that she's pregnant. Yes. She can rely upon the HSA to assist with all yes. of those needs. Mm -hmm. So when um, somebody, if they do a home pregnancy test, um, they call us up to mm -hmm. Women's Health and get a, what we call a booking appointment. Mm -hmm. So they get an appointment to come and see the midwife um, and they will go take a detailed history and um, order some tests and then they get a follow-up appointment with a, one of our OBs. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of our obstetricians. And we have five on staff. Um, mm -hmm. And then we do we provide services right throughout. So, you know, you can choose the, the beauty of it and what I love about working here is that we can provide maternity and midwifery care. Mm -hmm. And that if a woman chooses to come to us at HSA, mm -hmm. um, well, there's, we cater for low risk and high risk pregnancies. Mm -hmm. And um, if you fall into the low risk category, um, you continue with predominantly maybe midwifery care right. um, with the team in women's health. And then when you come in here to us, we would look after you in labor. Um, partner up with you and then in the event that there's any sort of emergency mm -hmm. our obstetricians are on call 24 7 right yeah Beautiful. yeah so yes. um also then we offer again on your choice it's all very much a, a choice with people but um we offer the prenatal classes mm -hmm. yeah and they run every monday from 5 30 to 7 30 um they're mm -hmm. free completely free and yes. um they cover a wide range of topics there's 12 topics in total but um, some of them would include, you know, normal labouring, mm -hmm. nutrition in pregnancy, um, alternative methods of delivery, and then they actually give a tour of the unit as well, which is mm -hmm. nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember those classes being uh, quite helpful, actually. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. are. They really are. Yeah. If you've never been through it, it kind of gives you a little bit of comfort. Yes. <laughs> um, that everything was going to be okay. And just yes. great advice about your diet and other things that you yeah, should be absolutely. You know, following. Yeah, absolutely. There is, as I said, is a wide range of um, topics. And if you go on to hsa.ky, you'll see it listed there. And they rotate. Mm -hmm. So it's eight-week cycles. So you don't need to necessarily join the very first class. Mm -hmm. You can jump in and go through all the classes. Wonderful. But everyone's welcome.
Yes, absolutely. So normal births, twin births, breach, vacuum, forceps, cesareans, yes. you cover it all. <laughs> we cover it all. <laughs> yes, we do. We cover it all. We have um, 19 midwives on staff. Wow. Um, all with a massive experience. I was, I mean, calculating our, our, our years experience, like it's, it's hundreds of years of experience mm -hmm. within this unit. Um, so we do, we cover it all. Um, mm -hmm. We work really well as a team. Um, the unit is well equipped to deal, as mentioned, with any complications that do arise. Mm -hmm. um, we have our call bell system. Um, you know, the rooms, we make the rooms as comfortable as we can. Um, patients, are, the women are always encouraged and if they want to bring in additional things to make mm -hmm. them feel at home, whether it be pillows, mm -hmm. even people sometimes bring in their own little lights or diffusers, things like that, just to make it as homely as possible. Yes. You know, because it is, you're very vulnerable. It's a very vulnerable time. Yeah. Um, but yes, we, we work really well as a team and uh, we work closely and well with the obstetricians we have as well. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's, it's a busy unit. It's a busy yes. unit. It's certainly gotten much busier over the years. Yes. Um, and we also have our two fantastic healthcare aides as well, Miss Olive and Miss Kadian, mm -hmm. and um, our nurse manager, Charmaine, who takes care of us all. Mm -hmm. And then our business coordinator, Miss Jillian, who helps us keep the place in order too. So yeah, it's a, it's a really good team, I have to say. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about the NICU. Mm. I mean, I've, as we mentioned earlier, I've got some personal experience. For a yeah. month, I was in and out every single day, yeah. multiple times for the day. Yeah. Um, and I was just so amazed at the care that you guys really offer um, with the preemies. I mean, mm. it was just, it really just blew me away. Yeah. But for people who've never had that experience, you yeah. know, can you explain to them what that 24-7 around-the-clock care is like? Yeah, so... If somebody comes in in preterm labor, naturally they're terrified. Yep. What we offer is that the pediatrician, one of the pediatricians on call would come and speak to the mom and dad. Mm -hmm. And if the mom is able, then we often even offer to show them the unit. So we know that, you know, if you do come in premature labor, it is extremely scary for the parents. Um, so what we offer if we can, time permitting, is that one of the pediatricians would come and speak to the parents or even one of the NICU nurses um, and again if it's possible we would actually show the parents the NICU mm -hmm. let them in let them have a little look and see where their baby is going right. and I think that's so important to help them feel more comfortable in a really scary yes, time absolutely yeah but um, we cater for very tiny babies at times mm -hmm. um, and as I think I mentioned the NICU is fully staffed with NICU nurses, mm -hmm. trained neonatal intensive care nurses. So mm -hmm. we are really fortunate to be able to provide that service. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it's manned 24-7. Oh yeah, the whole, our unit is open 24-7. Um, and that's what we always say to people in stress, don't be afraid to call us. Mm -hmm. And even for parents with babies in the NICU, we make sure when they're leaving, mm -hmm. they have the number, they can call day or night. Mm -hmm. um, and visit, it's open visiting, yeah, yes. which is so important. Absolutely. And I know, again, uh, just speaking from experience, when we would come in, um, it's a comfortable um, area. I know it's, yes. it's not the biggest space in the world, but you guys try no. to make it comfortable so you can spend yes. time with your babies. And, yes. you know, you get to still um, have that bonding experience. It's so important, yeah. yes. Yeah. And again, 
you know, thank God we're past COVID now. So, you know, we do, it's open visiting, as we said, they can come in, the moms can stay as mm -hmm. long as they want, mm -hmm. equally with their partners. There's no limitation on mm -hmm. it. Um, you know, and again, it's so good to, and important to promote that bonding. Yes. Well, tell parents what they can expect um, when they come in during the labor and delivery process. Right, so when somebody comes in, um, and even if it's just for assessment, if we're not quite sure whether she's in active labor or not, mm -hmm. we would bring her to one of our labor rooms, um, get her checked in, make her comfortable, um, and see how it goes, you know, see what's happening then from there. Do vitals and we would um, listen to baby. Um, and then again, if, if she's staying with us, then we encourage her, you know, take your time, use the space. It's a mm. comfortable space. All our rooms have been modernized um, to make them as comfortable as possible. And um, yeah, we have, again, we're fully staffed 24 seven. So there's at least four of us on per shift. So mm. you'll be well taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. And you can bring in your partner or your birth coach. Yes. So whoever you choose, it is one person in the labor room. Yes. Um, you can change out. So you know, if your husband, boyfriend, partner needs to go out and grab food, somebody can come in mm -hmm. and keep you company for a while. We're open to that. That's right. no problem at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's okay. very family centered Cayman. Yeah. Nice. Which is one of the things I love about it. It's really family centered. So, you know, we welcome that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because everyone's so excited yeah. and they all want to come in. But yeah, for safety, to, yeah. yeah, you have to restrict it while in the labor room. Yeah. But, um, and again, then we're fully trained and able to cope with any complications that arise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what about the postnatal and postpartum services that are actually available as well? Yes. Yeah, so again, we work hand in hand really with women's health mm -hmm. and the women's health team, the midwives there would go out and they do postnatal checks at home. Um, mm -hmm. And they offer, you know, I suppose it's holistic. It's a holistic checkup. They go out and they're looking you know, how are you getting on and how are you recovering physically? Mm -hmm. And then how are you doing emotionally yes. and psychologically? Because that's equally important. Yes. Um, and again, they're there to assist with breastfeeding. You know, anything yeah. if you were breastfeeding, see how that's going, offer advice yeah. with that. And it's, it's a free service and it's so good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But before you even leave the hospital, yes. they're going to show you how to bathe the baby for the first time. Yes. yes. You know, all these yes. things that as a new mom, sometimes you just don't I know, know. I know, exactly, yeah. yeah. So we do, we help with all that parent craft, um, cleaning the cord, cleaning their eyes, changing diapers, so mm. important. So all those things, yes. Yeah, yeah, so you, you leave feeling extremely comfortable. We, that's our aim. Yeah. Our aim is always to make the experience for people as comfortable and as good as it can possibly be. Mm -hmm. um, we pride ourselves on that actually, uh, giving, you know, mm -hmm. excellent care to the mothers and babies here. Mm -hmm. All right, and then there's antenatal care yes. that's also available. Yes, so again, I think, um, as mentioned, they can come in and it's almost like we would call it back home where I'm from, combined care, mm -hmm. where you see the midwife and you see the obstetrician. Okay. Um, and that's throughout the whole pregnancy. And then um, once you come in and you're under our care, you would be continued with a midwife throughout. Mm -hmm. 
again, unless a complication arises and we need to call assistance right. from one of the OBs. And for continuity, are you kind of assigned a particular midwife? Yes. So okay. you, um, we do the allocation. So the allocation is done when we come on in the morning. Um, so if I had, let's say, Mary on Monday mm. and I came back in on Tuesday morning, I would take back Mary. Mm -hmm. You know, so there is that continuity, which is great. Yeah. yeah fantastic. Yeah. I remember mine, Allie. Oh. <laughs> All right, so there are um, sort of additional services that any new mom and new family will want to ensure that they are well versed on. So everything from immunization and family planning, safety mm -hmm. of the baby. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about some of those services as well. Yes, so some of those would be touched on during the classes. Mm -hmm. um, and your baby actually, you know, with your consent, would receive its first vaccination here post-delivery. Mm -hmm. That is the hepatitis B vaccination. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other two things we do, we do the newborn screening test on the babies mm -hmm. um, and we do the hearing test on the babies. Yes. Yes. Sometimes that doesn't always, they're, they're covered in vernix when they're born. So that's ah. that white creamy stuff. Right. So sometimes it's stuck in their ears. Oh, okay. Um, so sometimes they don't always pass their hearing test at birth. And I say this so the parents don't, you know, get nervous or anxious about it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we bring them back when they're a little bit older and try it again. Mm -hmm. um, so then as regards family planning, so what we do is each mom gets a six week follow up appointment mm -hmm. in addition to the home visit from the midwives. Mm -hmm. um, and then at that visit, family planning will be discussed. Right. And options offered, you know. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you may choose one thing, but it might not work for you. So you have to try mm -hmm. something different. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, we run family planning clinics here on a Tuesday and a Thursday in women's health. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. All right. So we've covered um, quite a bit about the baby's care yes. and those initial, you know, prenatal during the maternity period as well as postnatal. And then, of course, caring for mom is mm. so important as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, people who are suffering from postpartum or any other issues yeah, can reach out. Absolutely. Well, that's what I say to moms. That's why it's so good that the midwives go out and check on everyone in the community. Mm -hmm. um, and if we see any sort of signs maybe displaying that this mm -hmm. person may be at risk, we would flag that right. so that they get a visit sooner or maybe more than one visit. Mm -hmm. um, because if some, sometimes we'll need more than one visit, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. I might be finding it harder than somebody else, so they might go back out a second or a third time. Um, but I would just encourage people to reach out. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes it's easier to talk to a stranger mm -hmm. than it is to your relative. Sometimes it's easier just to, you know, um, and we always say to people, you can always phone us. The yes. unit is always open. Mm -hmm. It's open 24 seven. Yep. If it's any sort of question, even I've taken calls from women who've literally just done a pregnancy test, mm -hmm. you know, asking, well, what will I do next? Um, mm -hmm. To then somebody phoning in saying, I don't feel well, mm -hmm. you know, I need help. Mm -hmm. So we get a whole range of calls. But yes. I would say to people, please phone us or mm -hmm. come in. We don't mind. Yeah. We really don't mind, you know. Yeah. And one of the things that my OBGYN said at the time is, it's one of the, in terms of health risk, it's also one of the most vulnerable times mm. for women in their entire lives. Yes. So any issues yes. that you're having, take yes. it seriously. Absolutely. Please yeah. do not <clears throat> ignore it. Um, you know, as I said, your mental health, your psychological well-being is as important as your physical. Mm -hmm. 
because having a baby is such a life-changing event mm -hmm. and it takes a toll it takes its toll on us obviously physically in yes. a huge way yeah but as important mentally you know mm -hmm. and i think social media is brilliant as mm -hmm. in you know there's a lot of information out there mm -hmm. but and there's a lot of support through there's some really good groups on islands that people can reach out to mm -hmm. but sometimes there's a lot of pressure on women to bounce back after having a baby mm -hmm. you know look a certain way or feed your baby a certain way and i keep saying it to new moms do what works for you mm -hmm. you have to do what works for you and your family you feed mm -hmm. your baby how you want to feed your baby. Mm -hmm. We're going to support you no matter what your choice is at the end of the day. Right. Um, we're, we're here for you. We work, we work in partnership with the moms, you know, as best we can. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, let's just remind people a little bit about the classes that are yes. available. So every Monday, 530, mm -hmm. and that takes place in Women's Health. Um, and if you're again not familiar with the hospital, you come into the main entrance mm -hmm. and just before you reach the x-ray department on the left, you'll see a door to the right hand side mm -hmm. and you go out through there into women's health mm -hmm. and they are free yep. and they run in eight week cycles. So you don't have to start at the beginning. You can just jump in and then, you know, you'll catch mm -hmm. them all. Yeah. Yep. And there's information available on the schedule and yes. the website. HSA.ky, yes, and also our social media pages on mm. Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. All right, wonderful. And then visiting hours for people who want to come visit so, a new mom? Yes, visiting is um, 11 a.m. to mm -hmm. 8 p.m. Um, and children are welcome back again mm -hmm. post-COVID, which is great for the moms. Yeah. That have other children, they can come in and see mom and the new baby. Mm -hmm. So that's lovely. Um, and we do try and not, you know, it's supposed to be two, two at a time. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a bit more, but um, we again just ask people to use common sense. So if you're not feeling well, please stay at home. Yes. Or, you know, if you must drop off something, wear a mask. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, for giving us this bit of information about the maternity services and the neonatal unit here at the Health Services Authority. Thank you, my pleasure. This 13th of April at Festival Green Kamana Bay, get ready to experience the culinary capital of the Caribbean to support local restaurants, to celebrate Cayman heritage, to feel the rhythm and dance the night away with family and friends. Get ready to taste. Get your tickets online now. Visit tasteofcayman.org. As a student of elocution, I tend not to give thanks at the beginning of my remarks. I think it's important to grab the audience and just jump right in. But I would be remiss if I did not, if I did not say and concede that this is the greatest honor of my professional life, and I thank you all. I'm not used to dancers and award presentations and ministers. Um, we tend to have far less impressive convenings back on my state side. So thank you again for coming out. One other quick note, a minor correction to the title that will hopefully make sense as the evening wanes on. So it's Letters from the Ancestors, Family History, Political Economy, and Our Future in the Cayman Islands. 
When Professor Connolly died, it fell fittingly to Baltimore, Maryland's black newspaper, the Afro-American, to notify the rest of the world. Connolly had been a dutiful son, a dedicated father. He'd been well-traveled, credentialed. He'd rubbed elbows with prestigious university types. A man of letters in public, Professor Connolly had published across newspaper and important black studies anthologies. He'd been a polished public speaker who could occasionally be downright inspiring. And what could he have still been had his light not been so abruptly extinguished? Lament with me for dear Professor Connolly. He died more than 80 years ago. Professor William Sullivan Connolly, or Smiley, as he'd been known, was my great-grandfather. Upon his hasty death from an especially aggressive cancer in 1938, the Baltimore Afro reported Smiley as a graduate of Howard and a postgraduate student at the University of Pennsylvania. Born in the Cayman Islands, the far fringe of the British Empire, this first Professor Connolly spoke seven languages, played several musical instruments, including apparently drums in jazz age Paris. He found work as everything from a preacher to a chauffeur to a journalist. He could safely be considered a late Victorian Renaissance man, but critically, he never held a professor's appointment. Smiley belonged instead to a generation of black moderns who fashioned titles when they had to, from street cred, whisper networks, and reputations of feats performed, rumored, or promised. The vast majority of black knowledge for the bulk of the 20th century went uncredentialed by the West's great learning institution. Most black people thus had to knight and title themselves. Sarah Breedlove, through the miracle of mass-marketed cosmetics, got to be Madam C.J. Walker. George Baker Jr., at the speed of radio broadcast, became Father Divine. Jamaica's great Marcus Garvey may have failed to harness steel, ocean liners, or realize his hoped-for black empire. Yet even he, in 1920, got to be the provisional president of Africa. In 1931, the novelist George Schuyler wrote of Black No More, a fictional scientific breakthrough based on an actual skin lightening cream of the same name. Black No More allowed African-Americans to shed their blackness permanently. Schuyler satirized that a reinvented race would prompt a national reinvention, threatening an end to Western society's old economic and psychic dependence on the Negro. Satire aside, though, scores of very real black people became fake swamis, counts, bishops, and esquires, given them and the countless crucial autonomies so many others grasped at through the range of reinventions. We here can let great granddad keep, professor. In the fall of 2016, I first discovered 
Smiley Connolly's archival footprint here in the Cayman Islands. It arrived via photograph, caption, and footnote in this Crown Connolly's colony's official history textbook founded upon the seas. Those traces led me to a cache of letters stitched into the binding of the colonial office volumes at the British National Archives at Kew in Greater London. Tracking his British correspondence between 1919 and 1920, I learned how Smiley used repeated reinvention and sometimes out-and-out -out deception to counter financial desperation. Following Smiley then led me further back in time to Howard University and to the archives of the Washington, D.C. area Adventist Church back in the United States. There he popped up yet again. The archival trail even pulled me forward to the library stacks of my own Johns Hopkins University. There, old Smiley, this time an essayist in a 1934 anthology, Negro, stood waiting for me. Mattering perhaps even more than where and when I found him was what dear Professor Connolly had to say. Again, against British viscounts and clerks, he thundered on about the violence and imposed poverty he'd seen and experienced in England during the global red summer of 1919. He'd argued against racist Adventists in 1909, hosting segregated sessions at their annual conference. In his Negro anthology essay from 34, Smiley even laid out a militant, albeit masculinist, vision of anti-authoritarianism. He presaged the decolonial politics set to flower across the British West Indies only a few years later. Quote, what we need is not men who will make the world safe for democracy, he spat, but men who will make the world unsafe for autocracy. Unquote. You can clap. Prior to these finds, my family had no living memory of Smiley's time in England or his apparent radicalism under empire. Our truncated collective telling of his life never afforded Smiley such context or content. Family lore I'd heard growing up rendered Smiley only as a genius or a fool in the abstract. We allowed for him certainly to be educated beyond the usual conventions of his racist age. Truly, we asked great-grandfather to haunt us, the unlettered, like a late Victorian apparition. He was the grainy, diplomat-robed golem who all but jumped in his mortarboard hat from the newsprint photo affixed to the mirror of mom's dresser. That's where I first met Smiley, really. Not in some footnote or brick-and-mortar archive, but down on Fletcher Street, 2211. Fletcher Street. Mom's first house sat upright and proud in a South Florida neighborhood rich with fruit trees and zealous street-level drug enforcement. In the late 1980s, I'm only 11 or 12 years old, but every now and then, Mom would direct my young eyes to the scrap of family archive. She'd narrate its meaning, recall what she could of his life, and try to remind me that we were more than the sirens or the broken bottles outside. Smiley's respectable photo served as our portal to our own respectability. Smiley had also been, the story went, the earliest known carrier of the mania. That's what the family in hushed tones called bipolar disorder or manic depression, the mania. 
at least two generations had been told, in fact, prevented Smiley from properly tending to his inherited lands and financial affairs in the Caribbean. It's what left his son, my grandfather, Naldi, the man of the family, supposedly a hollow patriarch, managed by the women, some said. It's what left us, Smiley's descendants, scratching through well-dressed economic precarity. In discourse about the black family, progressive scholars and public commenters will at times blithely drop the term intergenerational wealth or point to the lack of it as some kind of catch-all explanation for things like cross-racial health disparities or the sevenfold dis dis difference in what my home country between the monies held by black and white people. Now, conservative participants in such discussions might bring up intergenerational cultures of poverty to explain the same. Clearly, there is something intergenerational going on. Why else might the family of this Professor Connolly, not wholly unlike the first, have to wrap themselves knighted and titled in a false cloak, black, no more, might today describe the, the masochism felt by black homeowners across my birthland, the United States, pretending under the pressure of a low property appraisal to be white. Why do respectability and education alone still offer insufficient safeguards when it comes to black family inheritance? I come today from my birthland in part to ask this question among you all here in the Connolly homeland of Grand Cayman. I also come to share a bit of the Connolly past and present and share the Caribbean fragments from which I'm telling it to perhaps open a conversation among us here about how we might imagine together Cayman's future. In all the Connolly talk about my grandfather's and great-grandfather's madness, no one ever really spoke of the madness of capitalism, of colonialism. Empire was instead a gift. My grandmother, Sherry Connolly, kept a picture of Queen Elizabeth up in the house until the day she died. And her mother-in-law, Smiley's eventual widow, Rochelle Connolly, born in Paris, ensured through porcelain trinkets that European Emperor Napoleon would ride forever gallant across the charmless concrete mantelpiece of my grandmother's faux fireplace. Truly, the only anti-imperial tones ever struck at grandma's house came when Naldi stopped taking his lithium. On those days, Grandpa would don a dashiki and a kufi and adopt the name Ras Biko II. He'd find some occasion to query me, then still in high school, on whether I'd read Marx's Das Kapital or Oscar Wilde's De Profundis. And should I fail to make a hasty escape, he'd offer mirthful response to my apparent ignorance with a passage quoted sprightly and from memory. Upon reading years later Smiley's various letters, articles, and essays from a century ago, I realized there was something of his father's lettered manhood that now they seem committed in madness to conjure. Consider with me this evening the problem of reconstructing family history from what one might call a demented archive. I'm beginning to believe one can't possibly understand our mad, mad world really any other way. The demented archive, for me, consists of the combination of records deceptively straightforward, 
like those of Britain's colonial office. Those made from family rumor, those documents affirming the ephemeral nature of property and inheritance, and those immovable memories curated by commitments to respectability. Such an archive resides in oral histories granted by elders living with manic depression and Alzheimer's disease. It's also a confused and deteriorating physical archive of papers, clippings, and old passports. It's granddad's books on tape, recorded over with his spoken word manifestos. It's strewn paperwork concerning family land holdings in the Caribbean and aborted get-rich-quick projects. It's fuzzy family trees and frayed old letters from the ancestors. Some documents are so old, they've broken along the folds like puzzle pieces on deter deteriorating acid paper. It's the whispered existence of 19th century account books said to be divided among distant cousins. It's family phone calls missed, unreturned, or made too late. It drives you crazy. I'm especially blessed to discuss family history, archives, and the Caymanian diaspora in the form of today's Orman L. Panton lecture. During critical years in the middle of last century, Mr. Ormond fought mightily for the rights of women and people of color. He remained a staunch defender of Caymanian self-determination and did much to ensure that sober assessments of imperialism and its cost to everyday people would remain central to this country's political debates. I'm also proud to know that one of Panton's chief allies in this work was one Warren Connolly of East End. I can call him Cousin Warren, in fact. His father was brother to my great-great-grandfather. He was the first cousin to Smiley. And good old Cousin Warren might be considered part of a family tradition, what I playfully claim today as Connolly politics. To see and understand the evils of racism and impose poverty. Traditions of West Indian radicalism, as I'll discuss, bring mixed benefits, certainly, especially among the men in my family. It's nevertheless the vision and labors of progressive fighters like Armand Panton, Warren Connolly, and many more men and women on the West Indian left that stands critical in the making of the modern Caribbean and as the naming of this lecture attests to the making of Cayman in particular. I thank Professor Livingston Smith, his tireless assistant, Patricia Ebanks, and the committee of scholars and contributors I continue to meet for making my visit possible. The hospitality here has been exceptional and heartwarming. In many respects, what I'll be describing today consists of an intimate walk through the world that preceded and followed Ormond Panton's Cayman. It's also critically an acknowledgement of the far-reaching branches and leaves this mighty place has stretched across the Atlantic world. That stretching has occurred through the movement of its people, the progression of generations in the Caymanian diaspora, and essential for me as a historian it has stretched by way of the documents and stories that travel still. Now, from the Demented Archive, I have been building a book called Four Daughters, an America story. The manuscript principally explores the experience of women of color in the United States, following the breakthroughs and setbacks of decolonization, second wave feminism, the civil rights and nuclear freeze movements. Four Daughters provides, too, a fresh look at how families survived and, in rare instances, redirected the evils of right-to-work politics, the war on drugs, and the establishment of investment banking in the greater Caribbean. 
It considers indeed how immigrants and their children curate and endure what we could even call a Caribbean history of the United States. It is a rendering of a working class Atlantic replete with recurrent radicalism, lingering imperial fealty, and serial land and wealth expropriation in island homelands. Through the lives of my mother and her three sisters, four daughters of West Indian immigrants to the US, the book treats the experience of black people and principally black women as the outcome of multi-generational Atlantic world processes and critically again, practices of colonialism, migration, racial awakening, and attendant political retrenchments. For my remaining time, I tell in three parts a braided tale of family and political economy. Each episode parses the entangled themes of reputation, land, and family lore. Part one, promissory notes. Exhibits select scraps of documented truth and falsehood, beginning with William Smiley Connolly. It draws samples from the vows and imperial expectations upon which one family, my family, has based its story. Part two, the inheritance, considers the material precondition of those promises and expectations, the Connolly homeland of the Cayman Islands. It explores the literal paper and paper-thin explanations those family lands generated, particularly as the Caymans went from the margins of empire in the 1930s to the center of offshore finance in and after the 1960s. Part three, unsettled accounts, locates the meeting place of late capitalism and family talk of the mania. It casts the Connollys and Hughes that consider how we've all assumed some measure of personal responsibility for our absurd, enduring, and structurally colonial predicament. The sum of these parts evidences and argues for a way that we might think together on scales vast and scales intimate about what life has really been like living in the belly of a success story. We can wrestle with that and more in our question and answer portion. Part one, promissory notes. Now, with intention, I start a story about post-imperial women with a colonized man, William Smiley Connolly, effectively the first Connolly modern. The patriarchy, colorism, and petty bourgeois survival techniques articulated around his comings and goings shed light on shared cultural grammar governing an Atlantic family and their wider world. Moving through and past Smiley's life to the lives of select Connolly women highlights how colonial era precarities followed families across continents and generations. I must say too that to start with William Smiley Connolly means to start with a lie. I am afraid he is lying. This phrase, written in almost caricatured British understatement, stopped me cold several years ago as I researched Smiley's demand for financial support from the Britain's colonial office in the British National Archives. Smiley had written several letters, dropped by colonial offices unannounced, and threatened every manner of legal and political action. He, like many hundreds from the empire, sought travel money to be sent out of England following the post-World War I upticks in racial violence spreading across England and Wales. To make matters worse, the black men of the British Isles were suffering rampant employment discrimination. Smiley, in his hardship, had grown indebted to his landlady, which he considered an especially sharp indignity. I want no more evasive letters. I want either work, money, or definite instructions given where I may apply with assurance for repatriation and adequate resettlement allowance. And he was sure to add, 
I want that at once. Among the various notations and marginalia that accompanied my great-grandfather's eloquent, smoldering letters, there bled these cynical statements from colonial officials and minor factual inconsistencies on Smiley's part. Here, a date where he claimed something happened conflicted in two different letters. There, blocks of time and circumstance relative to how Smiley was able to support himself would remain curiously unaccounted for. Smiley claimed in July 1919 to have come to London from America on a missionary invitation. But as one official averred, quote, I can find no one who knows anything of this supposed mission to the USA, unquote. Clerks would then furnish a May 1919 letter in which Connolly professed to be a new arrival, not from America, but came in, come to Britain to raise money for education in his homeland. He professed in those earlier visits to need 1,000 pounds to build a public education system for Grand Cayman. Smiley had been a teacher, I knew, but he'd also written in other letters I'd read firsthand of a desire to be sent to Britain's newly acquired West African colony, Togo, to perform missionary work for the empire. All the clerks and military officials who met Smiley in person seemed to come away with conflicting accounts of his timeline and plans. Each of these elicited in my own mind tiny barbs of doubt. And he has the nerve to call himself reverend. It was around December of 1919 that officials in the colonial office seemed to have cracked some riddle. He stated originally that he was here to represent the interests of Grand Cayman. Then he came over as a result of an invitation to colored young men in America. Now we know the real reason, though I never suspected, I must admit. According to reports from the Office of Jamaica's governor and the Regional Commission of the Cayman Islands, quote, immediately before his last departure from Cayman, Mr. Connolly was defendant in an action to recover damages for seduction. Following a trial, quote, a jury of his fellow islanders assessed damages at 100 pound and not having the wherewithal to satisfy the judgment debt, Mr. Connolly left the island. Now, it's completely possible that any charges following Smiley could have been bogus. Seduction in the empire could at times refer to forms of political indoctrination, and Smiley was, after all, a teacher. Colonial officers across the British Empire, moreover, had among their weapons against dissidents, morality smears, and crippling fines. That said, given the precarity of women in general and women on the black fringes of the British Empire in particular, the charge of seduction could have been more than valid. It could have indeed been a euphemism for some pretty wicked business. Smiley's own mother, Elizabeth Marion Wood, and this is according to the most detailed Connolly family tree that we have, was married at the age of 12. She bore him her second child at age 14. And after three more children, totaling five, she was dead at age 35. The Cayman Islands of the Victorian era was no paradise for women. At perhaps its most benign, seduction, even when consensual between intimate partners, represented an infraction against the ownership rights of fathers over their daughters. A deflowered woman, having been seduced, was damaged property. 
hence the 100 pound in damages. Such represented the absurd accounting of patriarchy under capitalism. The facts of the case remain a site of still fruitless diggings. I can conclude that any hope Smiley had of securing government travel funds had absolutely evaporated. His many months of self-presentation and carefully crafted indignation had been undone. He remained broke and marooned. Smiley was slated to face his debt in Grand Cayman by way of the HMS Changanola. He never got on the boat, however, choosing instead to hop a vessel to France. And this is simply the ship manifest. It's a little bit small. You can't see his name, but it's scratched through. He went to France in 1921, and there in Paris, William Smiley Connolly engaged and eventually married Rachel Emmy Dubuis, my great-grandmother. A white woman born in the City of Lights, Rachel had been raised in a convent and met Smiley through a mutual acquaintance, Smiley's piano teacher. The pair would travel to Cayman by way of Cuba in 1924 and live by turns between Kingston and Grand Cayman, surviving in the early going, largely of Smiley's occasional teaching gigs and Rochelle's skills embroidering for white Caribbean elites of both islands. In spite of his college degree, perhaps at times even because of it, Smiley found himself constantly, constantly frustrated by walls, stumbling blocks, and ceilings placed between him and more secure professional prospects. Everything from his uncommon credentials to his white wife, seemed to be at issue. Eventually, Smiley saw, Smiley and, and Rochelle had four children. Reginald, my grandfather, Michelle, Marie France, the only daughter, and Daniel. The next several years proved especially tough. Smiley again took to performing odd jobs, did some preaching, and added to his earnings with occasional columns he'd written for Jamaica's Daily Gleaner. As one could expect, his articles for the colonial press seemed at times to be those of a man educated well beyond his years or his station. Discussions of civil servant meetings or infrastructure spending seemed to require references to Castilian conquerors or Virgil's Aeneid translated from the Latin. He taught students privately as well. The poverty of his students, though, had him being paid in domestic labor chickens and ground provisions. We actually saw that earlier with Mr. Orman. His students also recounted Smiley as an odd fellow. That's a quote. At once at home and out of place. This is a quote from one of his students here in the archive. We didn't like him too much. He was foreign to us, with no medical training to speak of. He'd bought a discounted dental chair and other implements, mail order from Japan. He then learned from a friend, a fellow Howard University graduate, how to pull teeth for money. In February 1938, William Sullivan Connolly, the eldest of four brothers, learned something else. He developed a likely inoperable stomach tumor. Underserved by healthcare in the Cayman Islands, the edge of the edge of the British Empire, Smiler decided to make for Kingston, Jamaica, the administrative hub of the British West Indies, and the closest option for potential surgery. In excruciating pain, 
Smiley boarded a vessel on the Simboco shipping line to begin the two-day trip against ocean currents some 200 miles between Grand Cayman and Jamaica. The doctor is advising me not to go, he admitted in this letter to the Simboco captain. Yet to stay here without treatment means death. The doctor strongly predicts my death upon the voyage up. I, of course, don't believe any such thing." Unquote. Smiley promised that should he die en route, his wife would cover his fare. He also conveyed to the Simboco captain that, quote, my express desire is to be buried at sea. Smiley detailed how much canvas and rope was needed to bury him in the seaman's way. He pledged further, in case this money for materials isn't sufficient, I'll pay the difference tomorrow eve. Days later, having arrived at Kingston, Mr. W.S. Connolly perished, indebted. He remains buried in an unmarked grave. Five days after laying her husband into the ground, Rochelle gave birth to their fifth child, Gabriel. Old Smiley left behind more than just a child unseen, however, much more. Alongside the letter concerning his burial arrangements, Smiley wrote a will. In it, he conferred, quote, to my wife, Rochelle Connolly, all my household furniture and dental instruments, together with my land property at Georgetown. He gave her, too, all my property at East End with the express proviso, however, that, sh that, that she, should she desire to sell or in any way dispose of the land at East End, she should first communicate with each of my brothers separately, Cecil, Luther, and Bunyan, and get their individual reply before disposing of such lands." Unquote. Smiley maintained, I desire them to have the first opportunity of purchasing said lands so as to keep our family estate unbroken. Part two, the inheritance. How are we doing? We good? All right. The East End Estate was over 100 acres. Captain John Cornelius, father to Smiley and his brothers, some may think it bears repeating that he was potentially the husband of a 12-year-old. He was also one of the largest landowners on the island of Grand Cayman. He apparently had been disappointed in his son's decisions to run off to college in America. He'd hoped that they would pursue the family tradition of becoming mariners. As punishment, he gave the brothers, who all attended Howard University, the worst kind of land, sandy, rocky, upon which no food could grow. Coastal land, over 100 acres of it. Now, my American audiences tend to get especially excited at this detail. But recall it's 1938. Cayman is still a two-day boat ride from Jamaica away. The land was there, but no one could do anything with it, really. The ensuing hardship upon Smiley's death would make Rochelle's story at least as remarkable as Smiley's. Speaking not a word of English, she would nevertheless remain in Kingston, settling on the poor waterfront among the fishmongers on Water Lane, just outside the general penitentiary on Tower Street. There, she raised her five children alone on a seamstress's income. It was quite literally catch-as-catch-can. My grandfather remembers how, as a child, he'd gather and stand among the village's other poor kids, women, jobless men, and disabled folks, and wait outside the walls of the Tower Street prison. Then, quote, 
Sometimes they would throw cornbread. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. The cornbread was at least this size, and he places his forearms together to indicate. My grandfather's voice lifting, and they would come right over the wall. The people would scurry to scoop up this raining food. Cheers would rise if a person managed to catch a loaf before it hit the ground. Obviously, people tossing loaves knew it was a fishing village, so to speak, now they explained. And we would just get these cornbreads. They were absolutely delicious. In her impressive work on family history, Imperial Intimacies, the Yale professor Hazel Carby describes this very same prison bread story as witnessed by her own father, Carl. Carl's next door neighbor, as, as in the very next door, were Rochelle Connolly and her five children, 14 and 12 Water Lane, respectively. Hold of the book, you're right there. Now, the Carbys likely saw Rochelle come and go as she performed embroidery, mostly for Jamaica's wealthy. British expatriates and governors living up in the hills in St. Andrews were her biggest customers. Rochelle also taught French to the children of the island's small white bourgeoisie working retail, too, on the side. From gig to gig, she juggled precarity and a commitment to preserving a respectable household. More than once, her eldest son, my grandfather, recalled People were telling us that she should give us up for adoption, and she absolutely refused. Rochelle survived by currying favor with sea captains and headmasters. She kept her society connections renewed through letter writing and timely updates of her children and her children's travels in the published readers of the Gleaner. Colonial institutions built around extraction, indoctrination, and reputation. The family's survival would depend on these. Rochelle's son, Naldi, and his wife, Sherry, my grandparents, would meet down on Water Lane and run off to England in 1950 as part of the Windrush migration. He would join Her Majesty's Merchant Marine. She would become a pulmonary and later psychiatric nurse under, the Britain's, under Britain's National Health Service. Now, there was plenty of travel, salons, parties, and no small amount of love. Part of Sherry's choice of mental medical field, psychiatric medicine, she had no trouble saying years later, grew from needing to ensure that her own husband would never be institutionalized. In the 19th and early 20th century, increasingly global imperial norms of mental hygiene gave rise to naturalized and gendered understandings of madness. Among these understandings stood the idea that first diagnoses and last lines of care for the mentally disabled remain part of modern women's domestic work. Somewhere in Sherry's colonial fashioning, caring for a mad man became the price of marriage. Those costs only seemed to increase over the years. The Connollys left London in 1958 and settled in New London, Connecticut, at 4 Terrace Avenue. The two daughters they had in London, they added two more children to, four daughters, Deanne, Tammy, Tracy, and Danielle. And very quickly, you have my mother there in the far corner. It's a little bit hard to see in the back. There's Tammy, Danielle is the smallest in my grandmother's arms, and that's Tracy on the ground being attacked by the family collie, Facel. Rochelle followed the scattering of her children as they moved from Jamaica to France to England to the promise of the United States, eventually moving in with her son, 
now the Sherry and the Children, in 1963. Rochelle and my grandmother became especially close. They spoke for years about their own experience married to challenging men. Tough times could be made all the tougher if a husband struggled to fight unemployment discrimination, struggled with mental health, or just plain struggled. There was no room for anti-imperial rants when children needed school clothes. Past stories of odd smiling and his many jobs became much sharper narratives about now these inherited manic depression. Grandma's British pension, which she'd earned as a nurse in the National Health Service, would wind up saving the family from complete ruin, even in America. Though Smiley had died in 1938, his widow Rochelle, his son Naldi, and his son's wife Sherry lived long enough to see that the end of empire in name did not remove many of the empire's daily expectations. The same truth would be felt by the women they jointly raised. Long after the start of decolonization, survival for the Connollys meant never really withdrawing from old colonial values and arrangements. One still had to remain preoccupied with the symbolic capital of education, of reputation, with the acquisition of what the world might consider marketable skills and appearances. A certain imperial pragmatism required families like the Connollys to hook their fates onto something, even if those things included institutions steeped in racism and white supremacy. The Merchant Marine, or the width of one's nose, the British National Health Service, eye color and hair texture, banks and universities, marriages and fair-skinned children. These and more provided the vessels of aspiration. Letters of recommendation were one's freedom papers. As the mid-20th century welfare states of the Anglo-Atlantic first expanded, then receded, the crown, or later the country, couldn't promise you many entitlements. All you got at best under our Atlantic democracies was an invitation to apply. Theirs, ours, was and is a world of a certain kind of rationality to be sure, but it's also a world that could be unkind to the point of not just desperation, but madness. So informed by the world as it seemed to be, my grandmother told me herself years later recounting a lesson she tried to impart to her girls. Quote, to make it in America, you must marry a man who is either white, rich, or educated. Smiley had been plenty educated. He was just too black and at the worst possible time. My grandfather was plenty handsome and light-skinned, but he had an eighth-grade education at best. And my grandmother swore that her own precarity came from not following her own advice, really her mother's advice. Her children were similarly stubborn. Her eldest, my mother, by grandma's telling, found the poorest, blackest, most uneducated man she could find. Grandma swore, but only briefly, that nothing good could come of it. Hypergamy, the act of marrying upwards, had never once been a word uttered in the Connolly home likely never during any generation. In the imperial cultural text by which our family lived, however, fewer notions held more power. The family homeland of Grand Cayman was already wed to England. And while across the decades the land inheritance sat, the Caymans fashioned from its bonds to Britain a series of incredible economic transformations. 
Before the 1950s, the Anglo-Atlantic concerns with Cayman remained relegated to shipments of turtle meat, rum, and other West Indian goods. At that time, Georgetown did not even have a 24-hour electrical grid. Then three major shifts happened. First, in the 1950s, a combination of changes in the global value of British currency, the waning legitimacy of British colonialism, and the discovery of tax loopholes prompted Britain and its allies to take newfound interest in outfitting many of its more remote colonies for offshore banking and currency exchanging. Second came the anti-colonial politics of the early 1960s, concerns about the arrival of black majority governments and threatened socialism in the West Indies struck the financial sector as a fresh and unnecessary instability. The old Connolly homeland offered anxious investors from the United States and the United Kingdom projections of a white political climate, really a white regulatory climate. No threatened nationalization of banking services, no demands for microfinancing local populations, We've grown quite comfortable describing late capitalism as a critical site of discontinuity, the birthplace of so-called neoliberalism. Yet quite contrary to our predisposition for tales of rupture, Anglo-Atlantic capital in the 1960s and 70s pursued a certain administrative and racial continuity, one that the Cayman Islands uniquely provided. Cayman, Union Jack aflutter, became a colony for decolonizing times. Jamaica in 1962, Bahamas in 1973, Bermuda in 1979, one after the other, financial services in these islands pulled up stakes and relocated to Cayman. Third, and finally, with the arrival of offshoring, came new forms of predatory real estate speculation. The real estate pages of the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and Financial Times erupted with any manner of advertisement declaring liquidation of 70-year-old estate. The white financial press touted the island status as a British crown colony and declared it 100% tax-free. What's been called the second British empire, an empire of finance, would effectively turn the white man's burden into white capitals offshore. Along sites in the Seychelles, British Virgin Islands, Jersey and elsewhere, Cayman quickly became home to shell companies from across the globe. Lawyers from Britain, the US, and Canada joined the architects of growth in Grand Cayman to ensure the complete absence of taxes on income, property, capital transfers, corporate profit, and inheritance. And obviously, those who know this history far better than I know where Oman Panton stood on many of these issues. Investors across the Anglo-Atlantic soon set up trusts where they transferred income, capital gains, and preserved estates. Thanks in part to Cayman, all inheritance in places like the United States would not be created or sheltered equal. Through the 1970s, American money that would have been taxed to pay for any number of services and public goods inside the US moved instead as debt and stock into the offshore slipstream. Cash-strapped cities like New York or Chicago struggled to fund education and social services. The American urban crisis had at least one foot offshore. Now, I want to be clear. With so much of the global South experiencing structural underdevelopment, this place reversed the trend. That in its own way is a Caribbean success story. It grew in some measure from neighborhood level underdevelopment orchestrated by American capitalists looking to avoid the payment of US taxes. The trends continued into and beyond the 1980s as CEOs and their ilk looked to Cayman to cut the cost of an affluent life. Now, 
Y'all remember Donald Trump, I'm sure. His administration's former Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, owns a yacht registered in the Cayman Islands. Actually, she and her family own 10 yachts. Flying a Caymanian flag on just one of the family's 10 yachts saved the DeVos family estate some $2.4 million in taxes and countless other dollars in costs in ununionized offshore crew. After some 500 years, it seems pirates still bury their treasures in the Cayman Islands. A swashbuckling maritime world of wooden chests, brigands, pistols, and sabers gave way to a legion of well-heeled 20th and 21st century buccaneers, wielding gutted regulations, accountability loopholes, and a fistful of financial services. As home to 60% of global hedge fund assets, Cayman is the largest holder of US securities in the world. One address, 121 South Church Street in Georgetown, served in 2008 as home for nearly 19,000 separate companies, each marked by a brass plate mounted on a wall. Reflecting the turnover in commercial real estate, the brass plates have since come down. But here too, I must be very clear. Grand Cayman today, in spite of how global capital may regard it, is not some vacated land of account numbers and computer terminals. Cayman is its people, be they born here or like me who owe their very existence to here. Family, love, land, history. It's the danger of all that romance being drowned out by the sociological horrors that leaves the future of the entire Atlantic world reflected and potentially decided in this place. The highest per capita incarceration rate outside of Russia. That's Cayman. An automobile fatality rate six times that of all of North America. That's Cayman too. Those sadly are features of so-called offshore life. Now, just yesterday, I rode a bike up and down Church Street during rush hour, <laughs> looking for that old brass plate commercial hub. I struggled to distinguish between my own craziness and the mania of colonialism. Part three, unsettled accounts. Thank you all for staying with me. Before she died in 2006, my grandmother from her breakfast table would sometimes mourn how Jamaica gave up the benefits of subjecthood. And she would always point to Cayman as proof of Jamaica's folly. Enveloping the lament would be mentions of past idyllic Caribbean life and occasionally images of Smiley. In the photo album, wearing a quilt on the wall, framed in poster size, playing the drums. How many languages did he speak again? Yeah. Was it true that he was manic true too, like grandpa, I would ask? Talk of the mania tends to go hand in hand with talk of the land. They're selling land in the Cayman Islands by the square foot, you know. Why, folks wonder, did Smiley wait until he was on his literal deathbed to get his affairs in order? Who had all the paperwork? Wealth was just beyond reach, or wealth just beyond reach signals the meager worth of men touched by the mania. And what of those 
100 plus coastal Connolly acres. They've remained in the family. Thank you very much. However, after Smiley and his three brothers had umpteen kids and even more grandkids, it's now basically carved up by a number of relatives who are all very lovingly working it out. Now, land unsettled made settling back home for generations of the family impossible. In search of financial security, many of the Connollys flowed here and there. This one to Cleveland, that one to San Diego, another to Fort Lauderdale and Miami. At each stop came more reinvention, the need to bank on letters of recommendation and a few well-placed calls from white friends, just so you know. That's me there with the clip-on tie. That's Rochelle there in the middle who lived with us until she was 100. My grandmother, Sherry, my grandfather, Naldi, and the four daughters in the back. Tracy, Deanne, my mother, Danielle, and Tammy. And the small lad in the front is my younger brother, Josh. The encouragement to dust yourself off, clean yourself up, stand up straight, and speak so they know that you're one of the good ones, one of the smart ones. The post-imperial world relies on its institutions to pick its winners and losers so that those institutions, so it's to those institutions that the family turned, as I mentioned, looking for good jobs, hospitals, corporations, universities. If tales of mismanaged land provided the starting point for stories about the intergenerational failure of the Connolly patriarchs, then the successful search for a post-imperial employment is largely a story about the women. It's about how they're disciplining the old home training through which women are supposed to prepare the family for a world of disciplining institutions. Suffice it to say, the women, even when they struggle with mental health, don't benefit from the explanatory power or the excuse of the mania. With family lands all tied up, it fell to the women Sherry and Rochelle, to the four daughters, to so many of their women cousins, to trudge and slog to just barely sidestep the calamities beckoned by the potential of lost wealth. As with imperial ideas about domestic work and mental hygiene, the women represent the last line of family provisioning. Their archive doesn't look like scathing letters to colonial officials, but rather like a dress Rochelle embroidered in the French way for a black granddaughter attending prom. It's the brochures of Sherry's hoped for but never bought Winnebago, a mother nearly bankrupted by her daughter's costly drug rehab. For the Connolly women, most proximate to me, whatever hardships they might face, have faced, had to be mightily refrained, lest their lives get talked about as a special kind of failure. Stumbling moments don't get cast as proof of racist or sexist structures working as designed, not finishing school or losing a home to foreclosure, moving away too soon or not soon enough, marrying the wrong man. All of this history threatens to fertilize constantly gardens of guilt and shame. I know those gardens grow among the families here too. In much of the Connolly's landless family storytelling, a gendered binary emerged. It was one of manic men and guilty, disappointed women. I have attempted as a son, as a grandson, as a historian, to trouble that binary. In the attempt, I've come to appreciate how unsettled family accounts stand 
on an equally unstable archive. I once asked my great cousin Lou, Smiley's niece, in 2019, was there ever any talk in the family of any of the original four brothers having mental challenges or mental issues? Never, she responded. I can't think of one person in the family who had, let's see, Uncle Willie was, he was the closest thing to not being mentally well. Uncle Willie, that was Smiley. But she was quick to add, he was brilliant, brilliant. He was as solid as a rock. When I followed up for specifics, asking how Smiley seemed not well, she couldn't remember. More than 10 years ago, you see, Cousin Lou developed Alzheimer's. For decades, the family in America and Cayman viewed Cousin Lou as the unofficial Connolly family historian. She had been the single most important caretaker in two respects of our transnational family inheritance. It was Cousin Lou who kept up with the land lawyers in Cayman. It was she who held on to much of the precious paper undergirding the family's claim. In a 2000 interview, Lou Coleman explained how she'd been holding on to Smiley and Rochelle's original marriage certificate from Cuba, 1924, because, quote, one of her sons, the one I know best, loses everything. That's now the so I said, I'll just keep this and put it in an envelope. Please give this to Daniel when I die. Daniel is now the younger brother. Even with Lou still with us, thankfully, Uncle Danny has proven to be that most elusive thing in Connolly lore, a responsible man. He kept what Cousin Lou had given him and more. I know because in November of 2016, he brought it to the Cayman Islands for a family reunion to celebrate now 90th birthday. Now, Allow me to set this image in your mind for a second. Picture mansions gathered like crabs on the shoreline. The official terminology for a group of cab crabs is a cast or a consortium. Rum Point in the Cayman Islands, where we stayed in 2016, might be called a cast or consortium of mansions. These shells of multinational capital lay empty and for a mere $15,000 a week, you can crawl into one of these hollow homes. 15 Connollys pooled our money to rent one of these. You know this place and these kinds of places. With outdoor furniture, nicer than your indoor furniture, and less than 30 minutes from where we were temporarily and expensively housed, sits today the Connolly lands at East End. Find a blacker predicament, I dare you. Paying through the nose to sit in the shadow of your own inheritance. On this family reunion and research trip, my wife Shani and I, rolling with the kids, resolved to work in the Cayman National Archives. We also promised not to let the delights of the Caribbean in November go to waste. We vowed only half days from nine to noon at work. And on our very first half day, a day of some respectable archival hits, mind you. Uncle Danny, what's this? Grandpa's brother brought this envelope to the reunion. In doing so, dear uncle allowed the letters of the ancestors to wander right up to me. On a pair of innocuous paper pouches, he'd penned the words, Cayman Papers. These were the foundation of the family's unresolved land claim, I learned. But they were also so much more. Family keepsake documents, 100-year-old letters of recommendation from Smiley's professors at Howard, 
original travel papers of my great-grandmother from France, maps, family genealogies. Rochelle had handwritten going back to the 19th century, poems, IOUs, thank you notes, and newspaper clippings. The swampy, sandy stretch of earth that had proven to grow neither crops nor dollars had grown documents. And from those, through its people, different stories. It's given me Cousin Lou's backup family historian, the story I've told you today. Cousin Lou and Uncle Danny managed to keep treasure documents from getting gobbled up by Grandpa's struggles. And yet Cousin Lou's Alzheimer's meant that before Danny could even get a fraction of what he'd curated, she moved into an assisted living center, which required, with the help of other dedicated family, radically streamlining her life. The archive in the process threatened to fracture again, this time between Lou's nieces, who lived between Ohio, Illinois, California, Connecticut. Four different daughters, in a sense. Thankfully, among these women have stood generous champions of family history. They've opened their doors, preserved Lou's files, and granted this grandson of Cayman access to new archival treasures, new rings of Atlantic connections. Then, there have been the Connolly daughters who've continued to call Cayman home. They sit among you in the audience. Michelle Ann Rivers, Raquel Jackson, Jen Dixon, special shout out. They deserve a special mention as cousins who have kept tight bonds with us, the Connolly family in diaspora. For weddings and birthdays, with hand transcribed family trees and documents of their own through phone calls and meetings with relatives and lawyers, they have kept the winds of time and circumstance from severing our roots to this incredible place. I thank and love my cousins here for all they have meant to our family and to this living history of our present moment. In closing, allow me to admit that even with such a personal project, one based on luck, love, and a little archival madness, I cannot claim complete scholarly novelty. I'm certainly not the first person to argue that preoccupations with respectability and racism shape black political futures. Neither am I the first to consider in multiple registers the madness of imperialism. I'm not even the first person to venture a book-length treatment of the Connolly family in whole or in part. That distinction falls to my former colleague, the New York University professor, Martha Hodes. In her book, The Sea Captain's Wife, Professor Hodes explores how the experience of work, coupling, wealth, and migration determine the experience of race. Her protagonist, Eunice Stone, a white woman from Massachusetts, marries a sea captain from the Cayman Islands, eventually leaving behind many of the challenges raised by antebellum and war-torn America. That sea captain's name was William Smiley Connolly, the first, the namesake and grandfather of the Smiley to whom I've introduced you. Now, history has been unkind to sequels, I'll admit it. Still, I hope with four daughters to be a sequel of sorts, to offer fresh attention to the family practices of intergenerational learning and the structural complexities of inheritance. I'm interested in considering the consistency of certain coping approaches for surviving capitalism. And I seek to explore how those coping approaches accompany evolving definitions of working class prosperity and bourgeois sanity. Why, for the love of God and our good sense, do imperial means of survival serve us so well in a professedly post-imperial world? I cannot possibly profess to know the future of the Cayman Islands. My professional oath as a historian prevents me from even trying. 
But if the past has been any kind of pro any kind of prologue, I do know that the collective future of the whole Atlantic world will be decided in no small part in the Cayman Islands. The formal mechanisms of law and finance here have made it possible for capital to escape considerable social accountability elsewhere. And many have come to Cayman very much liking what it affords. But for, but for those who love Cayman, those who know the personal price of imperial fealty, much about our future will be decided by how we elect to talk about the true price of national success. From my own provincial vantage point in the Caymanian diaspora, allow me to confess plainly, I tire as my mom and aunts, my West Indian grandparents and great grands tired of the dogged pursuit of well-spoken colorblind achievement. The choice shouldn't be falling somewhere between best black, barely black, and black no more. Rights in the world to come must be rooted in firmer soil. Thus, with my work, with this lecture, I ask us to consider how families talk about and act through that which is hereditary and that which we've all inherited, if only so that we may possibly do something different. Thank you all very much. God bless. I'm sure you want me to express thanks. Your applause said it all. But we do have time just now for just about two questions. So if you have. Sorry, I went on long. I apologize. <laughs> if there's someone with a burning question, we can give you an opportunity to ask. If not, we'll go right ahead. But I do want to at least offer the opportunity. There's a hand here. Thank you. I'm asking a question because I would really like to congratulate you for being able as a historian to be so involved emotionally mm. and yet retain the subjectivity that you presented here. I think this is basically in all my travels and what I've read and what I've listened to, this is the most fantastic lecture it has spirit that I never imagined that anybody could really come to be able to manage and being a Caymanian. It makes me proud to be one too. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Um, several years ago, I gave the eulogy to another great Connolly. Um, he was a sea captain also, Wardell Connolly. 
Um, he was one of the first black captains and the largest shipping line in America. Mm. Um, and um, I went up to East End to the graveyard, the Conley graveyard. Uh, have you been there? I have not been there. Pardon me? I have not been there, no. You, you ought to go there because in that graveyard um, lies the history of the Conley family when they came from Ireland. Mm. And what struck me was old Thomas Deet Dighton Conley. Mm -hmm. And in 1812, even when there was slavery, um, he was buying schooners for his sons from Boston right. and registering them in Jamaica. And I was saying, and at that time, they actually owned all the land in the sent from sea to sea. Mm. So I think that before you leave, you ought to attend that graveyard and perhaps you will see more history unfolding of your great ancestors. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Can we, can we do one more? One more, yeah, please. Follow the rules very well here. That's impressive. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. I'm going to be inviting now Dr. Khadija Swearing to present our guest with a gift. Wasn't that awesome, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> Dr. Connolly, Professor Connolly, it was, it was amazing. It was indeed a distinguished lecture. And like Dr. Frank said, this is one of the best I've seen. On behalf of the Board of Governors, the President and CEO of UCCI, the faculty and staff, of UCCI and the Cayman Islands community. We just want to say thank you for coming and sharing with us. Thank you for being a part of us. Thank you for your humility. Thank you for being relatable. Thank you for inspiring young Caymanians. We know that this wasn't the perfect time for you. And so it's especially, especially important that I thank you um, on behalf of the DLS committee. We know the sacrifice that you made to be with us today. And you said many things, many things stood out, but for me, the most resounding and what resonated the most with me is that we cannot make it safe for democracy, right? We need to make it unsafe for autocracy, right? And so I want to thank you once again on behalf of the University and the Cayman Islands. Thank you for coming.
Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Cold Hard Truth on Bobo 89.1 FM. Cayman's number one talk show is live weekdays from 7.30 a.m. Never miss an episode again. Watch anytime on CMR's Facebook and YouTube channels for the latest show episodes. Don't forget to follow us online on our social media channels and visit CaymanMarlRoad.com for all the latest news and community happenings.